what we're going to do, and, and I'll, we'll kind of have a formal introduction in a moment, but what we're going to do is we'll go through each one of the gospel topic essays, and at the end of each essay, I'll leave plenty of time to just have any kind of Q&A on that particular essay, and, and then we'll, we'll kind of move on. But I want you to know, like, like you're welcome to ask questions, and you're welcome to ask anything. And, and I've always tried to pride myself on being kind of an open book and willing to kind of field any question when it comes to, to church history and, and the like. Um, I want to say, too, like there's a wide spectrum here in this room. And there are people in this room who some are completely out of the church. Some people are full-in um, believers. And as an active Latter-day Saint who's well aware of like the intricacies of our history, I just I want this to be a safe space. And I want this to be a space where we just talk about the history of our church. And there's no contention felt from both sides towards the other. And, uh, and Jessica and, and your mom, which I think is just a beautiful idea, uh, suggest that we start off with a musical number just to kind of set the tone uh, for tonight's meeting. And so, Jessica, you're going to sing a song, and your mom's going to play for you, right? Awesome. I'm so excited. So we'll, we'll start with that. And again, any time through the night, if you guys want to get something, just do it. Uh, but please. <laughs> Just in 
struggle with church history and who are renegotiating their faith in some way. And those who love them, who who are still full believers in the church and the restored gospel. And and so again, I just want to emphasize, like, I want this to be a safe space where we, we try to extend understanding, we try to extend empathy, but I want to walk through the gospel topic essays, and I just want to hit the data of those essays, and I want to welcome questions. And I don't want to get into conclusions on any of these issues, because I think conclusions is up to each of us to kind of decide, for us to weigh our own things and to come to our own understanding of where things are. Um, but again, I want this to be a safe space. And so anywhere along the way, you're welcome to raise your hand. And after each essay, I, I will stop and we'll have a kind of Q&A time for anybody to ask any historical question. If you want to know where a piece of data comes from, what's the source for that? Uh, there's four or five people in this room that I know are very well read on church history. Is uh, as, as much, maybe more than, than the things I'm aware of. And so we won't have a problem, I don't think, to pull out a source and to tell you where things are found. Um, I want to set this up a little bit with a few quotes uh, from Marlon Jensen. He was the former church historian. He's now a uh, general authority emeritus. He was giving a, a talk to college students. It was either, I think, at UVU um, or Utah State, but he said this. He said, quote, when someone comes with a bit of a prickly question, he'll be met with a bishop who, number one, doesn't know the answer. Number two, he snaps and says, get in line, don't question the prophet, and get back and do your home teaching. And that isn't helpful in most cases. So we need to educate our leaders better, I think, to be sympathetic and empathetic, to draw out these people where they are coming from and what's brought them to the point that they are at. What they have read, what they are thinking is, and try to understand them. Sometimes that alone is enough to help someone through a hard time. But beyond that, I think we need to figure out a way to live a little bit with people who may never get completely settled. I think it's a beautiful quote by Lord Jensen. And I hope that's kind of the spirit of what we're, what we're doing tonight, is to try to understand each other and, and to have some empathy and sympathy uh, for, for how intricate all of this stuff is and how, how each of us is different and we process information differently. And so sometimes the same data point can be shared with a room full of people and it's natural for people in that room to see that data point differently. Elder Stephen Snow, who's now the current church historian, he's a 70, Marlon Jensen before that was a 70 as well. Uh, Elder Snow said, my view is that being open about our history solves a whole lot more problems than it creates. We might not have all the answers, but if we are open and we now have pretty remarkable transparency, then I think in the long run that will serve us well. I think in the past there was a tendency to keep a lot of the records closed or at least not give access to information. But the world has changed in the last generation. And with the access to information on the internet, we can't continue that pattern. I think we need to continue to be more open. Again, another beautiful quote from a general authority of the church encouraging transparency. And then one more. Uh, this is Elder M. Russell Ballard. And this is the whole point that, for having the meeting tonight. Um, he says, God are the days when a student asked an honest question and a teacher responded, don't worry about it. Gone are the days when a student raised a sincere concern and a teacher bore his or her testimony as a response intended to avoid the issue. He continued, he said, it is important that you know the content in the gospel topic essays like you know the back of your hand. 
If you have questions about them, then please ask someone who has studied them and understands them. In other words, seek learning even by study and also by faith as you master the content of these essays. So tonight we're going to do what Elder Ballard has suggested. We're going to get to know these essays uh, like the back of our hand. And so there were, everybody in the room, is everybody in this room, are you guys all familiar with the gospel topic essays? You at least know where they're at and they're on LDS.org. And, and you're aware that there's, I think, about 13 of them that the, the church uh, put out, started putting out maybe four years ago. And have been encouraging members to read them, but I, I find that most members of, of, of the church are hesitant to kind of dive into them and to, to read them and to kind of talk about what's going on there. Um, but I wanted to start off with a couple of simple ones, I think easy ones to kind of talk about. The, um, the first one is the Other in Heaven uh, essay. And I just, just by a show of hands, has anybody in the room read the, the Mother of Heaven, Mother of Heaven essay? So with each of these essays, I want to start off asking you guys a question, and, and then we'll kind of go into each of them. How are you? Awesome. Glad you're here. Restaurants at the end of the hall, tons of food and drinks behind me. Anybody's welcome to get up and get something during the during this. So Mother in Heaven, let's start off with that. Can you can you give can anybody in this room give me kind of just a brief synopsis of kind of how we how we've approached that topic in the past? Anybody? Come on. She exists, but we don't talk about her because she it's too sacred of a topic. But we know she exists. Right. Um, excellent. So the gospel topic essay lays out a few things. One is that Joseph Smith never talks on the public record about Heavenly Mother uh, directly in any kind of first-hand account. We get any information we get are from second-hand accounts um, within church history. Uh, the, the brethren in the essay acknowledge that Heavenly Mother does exist. I mean, she's there, and she works with Heavenly Father to carry out the plan of salvation. And... There's almost a little bit of an inkling of like, yeah, we actually could talk about her more. We, we could we could bring her up and we could talk about her. The biggest thing I think the essay throws out in terms of why we don't is that we don't really know a whole lot. And so anything that we would say would be in some ways speculation. Um, the brethren have never gotten any kind of revelation on the substance of who Heavenly Mother is and what her responsibilities are. And so any lack of wanting to speak about her is not out of like, if we say her name it'll be mocked or made fun of or, or I don't think that's the real issue I think it's we just lack any substance to talk about and, and so I think we as Latter-day Saints have got to be more comfortable with Heavenly Mother being discussed and it being brought up in a lesson and it being a piece of conversation and, and I'll tell you a little point of why um, there are a lot of sisters in the church who, who realize like they have a Heavenly Father to look to for the example of who they're to be like, but they also wish they had a Heavenly Mother and that they knew more about her and so that they had that example kind of at the forefront to know what to be like. And, and I think that's a healthy conversation to have in regards of discussing Heavenly Mother and, and the beauty of her and and the power and responsibility that she holds, even if we begin to kind of edge just outside of what we know, just to start kind of thinking about those things and having conversations. I, I know in some classes, people would be really uncomfortable the moment she's even mentioned. 
And I think we just have to get past that. The essay doesn't make any commentary that that's a, a taboo subject that should not be talked about. And so I wanted to kind of start off with that one. Really easy one. And so I'll simply ask, does anybody have a question on that essay? Please. Do we have more than one another? Yeah. So thank you. And again, I'll make clear, no questions off limits. Early in church history, you have, what's that? Oh. Let me repeat it. So she's asking about polygamy because polygamy, all the all the interconnecting tangents of polygamy wrap around almost every piece of our theology. And so she's asking, do we have multiple heavenly mothers? Do, do, is your heavenly mother different than my heavenly mother? Probably. Yeah. So so the, the <laughs> so the response back would be early, early in early in church history, there's a lot of speculative comments. There's a lot of quotes by early leaders speculating on what that looks like. Was Jesus married? Did we have more than one heavenly mother? Is Cain is big for you? We, we tended to, in Mormonism to like to have all the answers to the questions. And so we sometimes kind of overstep just a little bit, and we would, we would make speculative comments or teach things that I think today in the church we backed away from. And so I would answer that with, we don't know... But I think the best answer is the brethren today are not talking about that subject at all. And it seems to indicate an awareness that we don't know the answer. And it would be better that we not even try to answer it, right? Like, like the best answer is I don't know sometimes. And we sometimes have a tendency to say yes or no and to be on the record one way or the other. But I think we need to recognize in today's church, we're stepping back from a lot of things we've taught in the past. And we're taking new approaches and so we ought to just leave space like, yeah, they used to teach that. They don't today. Why is that? And perhaps because we don't have as much certainty as we thought we did. Fair enough. Wouldn't we still be speculating if we were to have a conversation about her? Because like you say, there's no scripture about her. I mean, anything that we talk about her is like speculation. So you're saying like we should have a conversation. Like, be more willing to have a conversation about her, but any conversation seems like it would just be speculation. Yeah. I think any conversation is. I, I think the safe ground is to say, if, if you're having a conversation within a believing Latter-day Saint context, it's one, to allow her to be mentioned. Two is to say, like, she does have power, and she does have responsibility, and she is working alongside Heavenly Father to affect the salvation of God's children. And... I think anything beyond that is going to be speculation. But I think as, as a Latter-day Saint culture, we are so um, defensive of not even bringing her up. And I'm saying we've got to move that goalpost a little bit. And that means that in some conversations, you're going to sense that the member next to you is beginning to maybe enter that gray area. But rather than to snap in judgment, like let that gray area sit for a little bit and allow the room to kind of wrestle with some of those questions rather than, hey, we don't talk about that. That would be my hope, that we can begin to have kind of a safe conversation in a, in a work context. Malcolm? If it's not speculation that we can become like God, then surely it's not speculation that God can have multiple wives because if Joseph Smith becomes a God, he's going to take his wives with him. Yeah, so... Is that in the essay? Sorry, did they, is it? No, there's, there's the nothing essay? in the essay about okay. this. And, and Malcolm, I agree with you in terms of that theology has been posed. I'm also going to suggest as we go through the night, 
that we maybe leave more space uh, for what Elmer Uchtdorf said, which is at times sometimes we make mistakes, and we don't. And some of the mistakes have been great. And I want to I want to leave just space enough in this room that there are there are going to be competing sides of that discussion, right? And and not to have one person say like, no, this is the way it is, but to leave room for somebody on the other side of this room to say, ah, I'm not going there. I'm not okay with polygamy, and I don't think it's on the other side because I know there's a lot of board members, this is board member, church members who don't necessarily feel that as well. Is that fair? Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Um, any other questions on Mother in Heaven? Good. So these are the simple ones. Uh, the other one is becoming like God. Uh, show of hands, who's read that one? Okay. Anybody have a, a quick, like, how, how when, when we used to talk about Mormon theology 25 years ago, what was the picture we painted in our heads of what happens after this life? 20 years ago? 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago. We become like God. Okay. We become gods, right? And what does that mean? What does that mean? We create yeah, worlds, right? we populate them, we, right. we perpetuate salvation. Yeah. And, and the essay here, again, wants to slow us down and simply say, like, both, they kind of point to people outside the church, but I think this is very fair to say of people in the church, too. We've painted caricatures of ourselves by saying, like, oh, we'll be gods of a planet, and we'll have this, and we'll have spirit children, and they'll populate our planet. And the essay seems to want to step back from that and say, we don't really know exactly what happens on the other side. We framed it in this way, but that, that way would be a caricature. And it wouldn't really grasp the full scope and breadth of what it means to be an exalted person. Um, and, and so again, to walk into a class and say, yeah, we get our own planet someday, I think that takes a, a, a broad issue and minimizes it to this tiny little detail that's easy to kind of poke fun at. And I think we've got to be careful to not let a class minimize exaltation to some little detail. Does that make sense? Is that fair? So, did they address the optimum quote? The quote I've heard throughout my life, I don't know if it was really attributed to Lorenzo Snow, but that's what I heard. As man as, man as God once was, as God is, man may become. So is that addressed in that essay? It is. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we still hold to that quote, although with the caveat of at least recognizing that on some level, President Hinckley, in one of his public interviews, at least distanced himself a little bit from half of it, right? And that may just be because you're in the middle of having a public interview and, you're, and you just don't want to go so deep in that, right? But at least recognize he did that. But they do address it in the essay. I think the quote is still completely valid within Mormonism. I, think, I don't think the church is going to deny that quote or say, no, we don't believe that anymore. I think they still hold to that. Um, there's indications that, you know, from the King Follow sermon and other things that Joseph taught, that same kind of idea of theology. Of course, it's Lorenzo Snow who comes up with a couplet. Um, but again, what happens on the other side and what that looks like, I think the essay tends to say, like, we really don't know. And it's a lot more unknown than maybe we've even posted, and certainly the way the media and the public have posted. And, and so again, you're gonna find throughout the night that we're gonna we're gonna share data points, especially when we get into some of the other essays. But that our the certainty we as a church have expressed in the past, we're gonna you're gonna you're gonna see, and I think you are seeing the church not 
be as willing to proclaim those things anymore and to step back from some of that certainty. Fair enough? Anybody else? I've got a question. Sure. Do, you, do the, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but the, the 12 and the, the Q15 are aware of the essays and they have approved them? They have. So when the essays first came out, they were kind of sitting in the background of the website. And people, average member wouldn't know about it unless you were already wrestling with these issues and you were paying attention to social media and you saw these things come out. And there were lots of questions on who wrote them and whether the brethren approved them. And the brethren in response to that have put out a disclaimer on the front of those essays um, where it says that these are approved by the brethren. I mean, these are, these have their, their okay. And you've got Elder Ballard and other leaders going out and telling the membership of the church to start reading these things and studying them. Um, so I, I don't think it's fair anymore to say like the brethren are not behind them. Does that make sense? Like this is, this is an official, um, church offered perspective, but also with the caveat that recognize that historians have written these essays, not church leaders. And, and so they are written from more of a historian's perspective. Uh, we know, for instance, on the race and priesthood essay, Chris, what's his name? Uh, Paul Reed. Paul Reed, yes. Paul, so Paul Reed writes the, uh, uh, something of many colors, race, race of many colors? Religion. Religion of many colors. And so Paul Reed writes the book. He's the one who wrote the race and priesthood essay, for instance. What he wrote was like 30 pages long. Church takes his 30-page document, and they edit it and condense it down to a, a page and a half of the LDS Gospel Topic essay. So recognizing that historian historian wrote it, but the church then edits it to the length and the substance that they wanted it to be. But I'm glad you asked that, because it sets kind of an understanding of what those essays are. Malcolm. Do we know if Joseph heard the couplet before he taught the doctrine, or did he teach the King Follett discourse after he heard the couplet? Uh, I don't know that. I don't know either. Yeah, I don't. And, and I think the couplet itself, while Joe, while we have some indications from like Wilford Woodruff's journal, things like that, that these ideas are being kind of bantered about by church leadership, that there isn't there isn't this couplet in a hard and fast place by the prophet Joseph Smith. And that the first time we get an official writing is from Lorenzo Snow. Um, but anyway, thank you. Anyone else? I don't, what is the couplet? Uh, as man is, uh, God once was, as God is, man may become. That's, so that's not Lorenzo Snow then? What that, yeah, that is Lorenzo Snow, it's not Joseph Smith. Okay. But Joseph taught the idea, just not that particular way of saying it. Okay. Right? Yes. <laughs> so I just, I have a bit of a problem with, with them backing down from, you know, what they, I mean, we were taught all through my life, you know, that this is this is the plan, and you know, I went on a mission to to teach people that, and then to all of a sudden they back off, you know, it was, um, and it seems to be because of public pressure. Yeah, I, I think so. I agree with you. I think there are lots of, and I'm always going to speak from this believing perspective, and I, and I hope you'll bear with me as I do that, because that's the perspective I hold, but. I think it's easy to go back into any other time in history where information is not prevalent because of the internet and to safely be able to overreach on anything and not have to be accountable to it. And the easiest way, I mean, one of the easy ones, right, is George Washington and the cherry tree. 
which is a completely mythological fabrication in George Washington's life. But if you go back to any history book of 50 years ago or earlier, it's in every one of George Washington's narratives. And as, as information becomes readily available, to a point where today the average person has access to all of it, right? But that's, but that's, that's not a history that's been given to us by God. Correct, and I'm going and that's and that's not a prophet who's yes. you know led by God and who's who's being told and you know told all these supposedly having conversations with Christ in yeah. the temple, you know, and I can't um, come to terms with with them if they are having those conversations like they've insinuated they are. They've intimated, sure. Then then. Um, they wouldn't be off that track. Right. So my response to that would be a recognition that we have at least allowed an idea to enter our culture. And when I say we, I'm talking I'm talking church leadership and not me, but, but also we as a, as a people. We've allowed the idea to enter our culture of a certain way of defining like what a prophet is. And we've done nothing to correct that idea. And I would still say 98% of Latter-day Saints hold that idea. And I would say that once we understand the data, we have little choice left but to somewhat redefine what that means to be a prophet. Okay. And Patrick Mason, and if anybody knows who Patrick Mason is, an LDS author, very intellectual guy, very smart guy, knows all the issues. And, and he stated, like, one of the things we have to do going forward is we have to kind of redefine what it means to be a prophet. Because the bar that we've set, it's going to be difficult for the members of the, of the church and the brethren to kind of meet that expectation. So I, I, grant, I where you're coming from, I get 100%. I'm, I'm going to offer, though, through the night that, that that definition has to change. Does that make sense? May I, may I just make one comment on that? Yes. I think that sometimes we overestimate the prophets. They, t- they talk all the time about they're just listening to the spirit and they're doing the best and they don't, I don't think they know much about history. They, they, right. they are real busy. We need to cut them so with, slack. With yeah. business and administration. They don't, but even Joseph, I don't think Joseph knew who wasn't doing a lot of administration or not very well anyway. He, now he, he got the Book of Mormon according to Royal Skousen sort of as a, as a, um, more or less channeled it. Right. right? He cha- and, and I think that there's a pretty good uh, way of looking at Joseph Smith that he didn't understand entirely what, what he got. He didn't understand entirely what he got when he got the Doctrine and Covenants. He got words, and he didn't always know the full meaning of all the words that he got. And he was, he was kind of learning about and developing his theology after he got the words. I mean, even the 98th section of Doctrine and Covenants, we, we got after after the, um, you know, the, all the problems in, in Jackson County, Missouri. He didn't he didn't practice the 98th section of the Doctrine and Covenants when they got to when they got in 1838. Right. He seemed to he didn't seem to have a clue about that. Right. And polygamy it is denounced in the Book of Mormon. I mean, so uh, I don't know that. I think that prophets can give prophetic revelations and and I even know I'd obey them. Yeah. Um, so on a surface level, like we should recognize that 
Moses kills an Egyptian. Noah's a drunk. Abraham lies about the relationship of his wife. Like if we set a bar so high that that the only thing that's going to make you happy is if they're perfect, we know that's not going to happen. On the other hand, like we also need to recognize what you're saying, which is they're not historians. When when the leaders come into leadership, they they're generally not from uh, any kind of historical training. Uh, nor nor do they really understand the context of what the predecessors did before them other than the ones who are currently in those forums, right? And so there sometimes is a lack of context, and I think we need to grant them some charity and say, like, yeah, they're not historians. They don't, they don't know all these data points. What about, what about this, Bill? What if we, as members of the church, elevate them beyond even where they would elevate themselves? Yeah, if you look at their statements, right, on what they've seen and not seen, you get a few direct statements. Um, you get a little bit of these guys saying, like, we've had a sacred experience. But they're generally not being specific. Again, I think they've allowed that idea to be in our culture and not do away with it. And, and for that, like, to some extent as a culture, shame on us for, for not being more realistic with what these things are. But Elder Oaks recently at a fireside said something along the lines of, he read DNC, where it talked about the, the 12 were to be special witnesses of Christ. And he makes the comment that we are to be special witnesses of his plan, of, of his atonement, of his resurrection, but of him, like, of, of like knowing him personally, our testimony is the same as any other member of the church who has the Holy Ghost. And when I, when I heard him say that, I didn't hear I read it, but when I read him say that, like it struck me like he's he's bringing the bar down a little bit, saying like cut us some slack. It's not that Jesus shows up in the room every day. And again, shame on us as a culture for allowing that idea to permeate. So I just had a question think. on that question. I thought it was clear. So has the church stepped away from as God once was and is now? Um, have they? Stepped I don't. Away from I don't that? think so. You had President Clinton in a public interview back away a little bit from half of it. So he he made the comment that you know the part about there's God and we can become like Him is still the case. But as far as God once being man, like he just kind of deflected the question and he didn't really want to answer it directly. And what is the essay? The essay just acknowledges that that couplet is in our theology. It's there. It's just it's laying there and it's it's not something that the church is denouncing. The gospel topic essay on becoming like God actually. Advocates deification quite strongly. Yeah. And so I don't think backing away from we can be That's why I say, like, sometimes in these conversations, let me put it this way. One thing we have to get comfortable with is there's contradictions within our history. And, and we have to get comfortable with that happening. Um, any other questions on the. We were on becoming like God. I know we got off, those were all good things to cover. Is there any other questions on becoming like God before we move on? Okay. So the next one is the first vision. And again, I'll ask the room, like, what, what did, you know, go back 25 years ago, or even to some extent, I think some of the story we still kind of hold on to today. We got the dog, we're we trying to do it. Sorry. Trouble. Come on, so this way. get off any doctrine that's not true, we'll just. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what she's doing. Um, 
<laughs> so first vision. Tell me, tell me the way we've told this story. How have we told? How have we framed the first vision? Uh, brightness of light shining above us. Two personages. Uh, one saying, "This is my son. Hear him." Which church should I join? Oh, none well, of them are that, true. Why, why did he go in the grove that day? Right? Yeah. He wants to know his church. He's had these religious revivals. James 1.5. He goes into the grove as a 14-year-old boy on a spring morning of 1820. Right? Sees, sees Heavenly Father. Sees Jesus. They both come together. Introduce, one introduces the other. And so that's the story we've told. The first vision is tricky, and, and I'll preface it this way. If you go back into Joseph Smith's day, Joseph doesn't talk about the first vision publicly, essentially at all. We have nothing on any kind of public document of the first vision until the 1838 account comes out, and then the 1842 account, which is the Wentworth letter, which is reflecting essentially the same verbiage of the 1838 account. But those are the only two places, and we don't really have Joseph talking anywhere else publicly about it. And even the early leaders, Brigham Young, Wilford Woodruff, John Taylor, they're saying almost nothing about the first vision at all. So I have a question. You know, I know that we, as missionaries, we've used the first vision, you know, as the first discussion or whatever. Were they not using that in missionary work back then? The first vision was not part of the missionary curriculum until 1961. Mm -hmm. So 1961 is the first time that missionaries go out into the mission field and use the first vision as a story to bring in conversions. So Joseph Smith and the early leaders don't say anything about it. And the earliest account we have is an 1832 account. Joseph Smith writes it in his own journal, his personal journal. It's the earliest account. It is, if you can imagine writing in your journal, there's, there's less of a need to shape your story a certain way to an audience. There's less of a need to be careful of what you say because of who's listening. And so this 1832 account is told very differently. And, and I'm going to preface that with, with the idea that why would there be differences? And, and the easy thing is to be critical and say, um, you know, he's changing his story. But I also want to, and, and, I, and I validate that that's one option. And I'm, I'm willing to give a space to those in this room who feel that. On the other hand, I also want to give space to the idea that it's a true this, in a true sense of the word, our memories change. In a true sense of the word, um, we cater the stories we tell to the audience that we're telling it to. We embellish or we pull back. We, we make something extravagant or we minimize it. And I think in any two stories we tell to anyone, we tell those stories differently at different, and I think there are two times in our life that we tell that story. So I want to give space to that too. Yes. And sometimes I think we mesh two different memories together by accident. You know, our brains just can't. And sometimes I'm like, oh, was that my birthday or your birthday? You know, and sometimes it's two stories that we mesh together and I don't know. There, there are lots of weird things that happen. One of the weird things we do, if we're not even at an event, but we hear about an event and enough time has passed, we create a memory in our head that we were at that event. Um, for instance, my, my wife's sister remembers being at something and and we, we know the exact date that happened on it she wasn't even like wasn't born yet. <laughs> but she's heard the family tell that story so many times that in her mind she's there. Right? And and so again, let's give space in the room like 
there are people in this room, and, and I validate it's a fair conclusion to make that that Joseph's story is changing. But there's also, I think, a fair argument to make that memories change, and the way we talk to an audience changes, and he gives space for that too. In the 1832 account, the earliest account, Joseph says nothing of religious revivals. He says nothing about wanting to know which church to join. His entire impetus is to get forgiveness for his sins. Um, there's discrepancies in these accounts about how old he is. In the 1832 account, I think he says he's in his 16th year, which would make him 15 years old. But the 16 is a little unlegible. And it's possible that it actually says 15, although most people think it says 16th year. So it is possible it's still his 14th you know, year. He's, he's the age of 14. Uh, the 1832 account, when he goes to the grove again, no Satan binding his tongue. And what he says is, says, the Lord opened the heavens and I saw the Lord. And if we take that at face value, again, Joseph's earliest account in his journal, the, the implication is that only one being showed up. That in Joseph's mind, you know, he's from a Protestant background. And, and so there's maybe some room to see like there's just one God. And there he is. And he shows up. And so I think going forward in the church, you're going to begin to see talks and mentions of the first vision that at least allow space for the 1832 account to have some validity. And to leave it more open, again, Joseph didn't impose the 1838 account. In fact, uh, Richard Bushman, a scholar of the church, says that uh, the 1832 account is the only account in Joseph's own handwriting. The 1838 account is not his writing style, and the handwriting is much more similar to either Sidney Rigdon or George Robinson, who are both serving as scribes for Joseph. And so it's possible that when we get to the 1838, the church is trying to formulate a story to tell the public, and that George Robinson and Sidney Rigdon, and Rigdon being a Campbellite minister, and, and also having a, a much more proficient writing style and a much more uh, a good hold on the vocabulary uh, may have been a huge instrument in how that uh, 1838 account was shaped. And, and so I also want to make a note, there's a reason the 1832 account, up until, let's say, three years ago, four years ago, like I bet other than three or four people in this room, nobody had heard about it, right? Is that fair? And there's a reason, and this is part of... The struggle we're going to have at times with church leaders and the decisions they make and just being charitable to them. But in 1921, Joseph Fielding Smith is called as the church historian. I think he's also either a 70 still or he's a member of the 12 at that point. But he's called to be a church historian in 1921. Sometime in the next 10 to 15 years, he discovers the 1832 account sitting in Joseph's journal in the church history department's vault. And unfortunately, and, and to some extent I'm speculating on the motive because we do have some conversation around why he did it, but we don't have anything concrete. But we do know that he referred to somebody later on that was a peculiar account of the first vision. And so sensing that it was a peculiar account, at least that's the motive I'm attributing to him, he takes a pen knife out and he cuts the 1832 account out and he puts it into the church historian's vault and stores it away so that nobody can have access to it because it's such a different and strange account compared to the one the church has now started to go with, right? They're starting to talk behind the scenes. Again, not in the missionary discussions, not at the forefront of the manuals, 
but at least as the church is aware that there was this first vision. And it's not until 1965, I believe that's the year, rumors begin to get out that there is this peculiar first vision account. And Joseph Billy Smith, not wanting to be caught essentially having done that, takes it out of the church historian's ball, takes it back into Joseph's journal, and then goes to BYU, gets a student there, Paul Chessman or Cheeseman, and has Paul write his thesis statement on the first mission accounts and tells him to use it so that way they're the first ones to mention it, the church, rather than the critics who were beginning to catch wind that there was this peculiar first mission. Joseph Fielding directly asked the yes. student. Yes. And so I, I think, think it went of it. What's that? I think it went of it if he was Joseph Fielding Smith mentions to another general authority that there's this peculiar account hidden away in the church history department. That person, and I don't know the name, but that person that goes to somebody who goes to the Tanners, Gerald and Sandra, who are ex-Mormon yeah. critics of the church, and at that point the Tanners start publicizing the rumor that this is it's there, they're hearing it, and they want to know more about it. And at that point, Joseph Billy Smith feels the pressure to then do something. This would be more Mormon WikiLeaks. Yeah. <laughs> so, but let's, let's step back for a moment. Joseph Fielding Smith, right? His father is Joseph S. Smith. His grandfather is Hiram Smith. His great uncle is Joseph Smith, the prophet. Can we grant a little charity for him wanting to protect the good name of his family, wanting to keep the records of the church and the story we tell consistent? I mean, am I okay with the decision he made to cut it out and hide it away? I'm not. I'm Wait, okay. what year did you say the missionaries start using it? 1961. I stopped using the 1838 account. In 1965, the 1832 account is taped back into the journal and goes public. So they hadn't been using that account for very long. Publicly. Um, in our missionary curriculum, no. Right. I think I think it's a story in our faith. It's just not it's not the foundation of converting someone to the church. Okay, sorry to interrupt. So what Please. year was that account put in the Doctrine and Covenants? Um, it would be after that. It wouldn't be. It'd be after. Chris, you know, when was the um, Josephus history? Yeah, when uh, was it put into the Pearl of Great Price? Yeah, when was it put into the Pearl of Great Price? When does that happen? But it's got to be after 1961. It wasn't put in the Pearl of Great Price top in 1961. That's and again, I'm happy to have anybody else in the room as well. Right? Google search, but I, I can't find that in What's that? They did it in England. They put the Pearl of Great Price together in England. Well, that's 51. It was the first Pearl of Great Price. His first, and was it? And it wasn't in it then? Yeah. And I know it's in the 1880. It's in the 1880. Okay. Joseph Smith's history. So it was in our, so that's part of the problem. It was in our scriptures, that 1938 account. But it's not part of the missionary conversation. Okay. It's you. not a conversion thank you. story. Thank you. Um, and so I think we have to grant some space to say, like, there's this 1832 account. It's the earliest that Joseph's own handwriting in his personal journal. He kind of indicates. I mean, you can you can stretch it, and you can say the Lord opening the heavens is one God, and and then I saw the Lord as the other being. But that feels like a stretch to me. And so I would say the 1832 account, if we take it at its face value, indicates that only one being showed up. And yet you can picture the church, right? We build our entire story on two beings showing up. And, and so there's this tension of, like, how do we get any space to even have that conversation? And, and I would say, like, we're going to have to start. Um, I want to read to you a quote from Richard Bushman. This is the most prominent scholar of the church. He wrote the book Rustum Rolling, which is just a, just a monumental biography on the prophet Joseph Smith. 
Um, having spoken to general authorities myself, I've had conversations with Elder Holland, and Elder Holland has directly said, like, when we have a historical question, we go talk to Richard Bushman. Um, and so Bushman is just that he's a, a phenomenal scholar, and there's nobody in the church leadership that would look at him and say, like, he's not credible, like, he's taken seriously. Here's what he says. He says, I'm very much impressed by Joseph Smith's 1832 account of his early visions. This is the one partially written in his own hand, and the rest is dictated to Frederick G. Williams. I think it's more revealing than the official account, presumably written in 1838, contained in the Pearl of Great Price. We don't know who wrote the 1838 account. Joseph's journal indicates that he, Sidney Rigdon, and George Robinson collaborated on beginning the history in late April, but we don't know who actually drafted the history. It's a polished narrative, but unlike anything Joseph ever wrote himself. The 1832 history we know is his because of the handwriting. It comes rushing forth from Joseph's mind in a gush of words that seem artless and uncalculated, a flood of raw experience. I think this account has the marks of an authentic visionary experience it's, uh, itself, which brings intense joy, followed by fear and anxiety. Can he deal with the powerful force he has encountered? Is he worthy and able? It's the classic announcement of a prophet's call, and I find it entirely believable. And so what Bushman is saying, he's saying it in softer terms. What he's saying is he set the 1838 account aside, and he finds the 1832 account to be the most realistic of Joseph's experience. <clears throat> We've got the answer here. So in 1851, Franklin D. Richards adds excerpts of the 1838 account into the first probate Prize, which, you know, was a paperback published in England. And then 1880, the General Conference is the first American pearl, and that's when it's canonized as scriptures in 1880. Gotcha. And it should also be noted, hey, Chris, you can shake your head at yes or no of this, but it should also um, be noted that over in England, isn't it uh, Parley or Orson who's kind of heading up a lot of the publications over there, right? Yeah. Are you thinking of Joseph? Uh, well, I'm thinking of the, the conflict. Well, I'm thinking of the conflict that sometimes the Pratt's would publish something in another country that the leadership back here wasn't exactly okay with what was being published. Does that make sense? Exactly. They were a long ways away. Orson Pratt, for example, publishes Lucy's Mac, Lucy Mac's biography of her family in 1853, and Brigham later says the Burman is a tissue of lies, which we still have today. But yeah. I have an original sitting right there. It's a really cool book. So recognizing that without airplanes and cell phones and you know, not even a telephone, right? That that it's hard to have these his, these conversations about what should we do, how should we proceed, and often in other countries, the leaders of the church went on missions would just do it, and and then maybe it was okay, maybe it wasn't for the leadership back in, in the States. Brigham kind of had a control problem. Can we say that tonight? Yeah. Is that all right? <laughs> I think that's fair. <laughs> so a, a couple of thoughts on 1832. Please. Um, the first thought is uh, Joseph does make mention that that he doesn't find the New Testament church or the church as described in the New Testament. So he's got some questions about the church and the churches. So he, you know, he doesn't refer to, you know, uh, you know, 
campfires and firesides and all that stuff. But, but, he, but he's got some questions in his mind. So he, he does make that reference. And then the second thought is he quotes the Lord that visited him. And at the end of that quote, the Lord is referencing that I'm going to come in glory, the glory of my Father. So he's referencing Jesus. Jesus is referencing his Father. Right, which would indicate that she, if, if there's one person, there's one person to the he, he's referring to a second. Right. It's person. not God the Father, but it's Jesus the Son. Correct. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's good. That has good context. Any other questions on the first vision? And, and, and all I would say is, if somebody were to bring it up in class and say, like, hey, there's this 1832 account, and I find it more valid, I'd give space to that. I would give space that the 1832 account might be the inaccurate account. It might be. And and that's okay. Like, again, can we get comfortable with some of the messiness of this and how complicated this gets? Um, other questions on the first vision? Did you just explain what you said as I was writing out? <laughs> what I said was, you're welcome, Reverend Friends, but in 1832, uh, that account, it's pretty clear from Joseph's words that this Lord who showed up is Jesus the Son because Jesus the Son references his Father. Oh, okay. okay? So if, if we find the 1832 account to be the account we're going to run with, then it's Jesus who's the person that you shows up. So we're thinking that the 1838 account is Joseph embellishing history to teach a lesson. It's not really actually happening, but it's something that's right. Or, or Sidney Rickman's Sidney Sidney shows us our, our thinking. This is a good way to tell a story that really that really tells a story about God the Father and Jesus Christ and the importance of making a choice about the right church. And so they tell a beautiful story that's not entirely true. Right. But is that any different than the history of mankind from the beginning of time? If you have a great history of the church, like volume six, we could read right out of there. It says that George Robinson and Sidney Rick and today worked on Joseph's history. I, I do have those. But yeah, there's there's no offense or buts that these two are helping. That the 1832 account is a much more elegant style of writing. It's a much more elegant verbiage, uh, vernacular that's being used. And and so that type of structure would be much more prone to someone like George Robinson and Sidney Rigdon. And there's none of Joseph Smith's handwritings, any of his writings that would portray that style. It's just not his style. Other call. So I, I think, Bill, that you're kind of splitting hairs a little bit about this because in my experience, when you read those four accounts, they're so completely different that it's you're not worried about the tone or the writing style. It's, and they're just, they're completely different, four completely different stories. We read it with our kids. They are. The second one has angels coming in. Yeah, one's, one's two angels, one's God the Father and His Son, one's the Lord, and one's like the other, something right. else. I can't remember, some combination of those. So I think sometimes if we think, oh, well, you know, was it a, you know, a sunny day or was it a cloud? No, that, that's not what it's about. So I, I think that everybody kind of needs to read those on their own and just that helps you clarify really kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, at the end of the day, What's being imposed is that Joseph had a deep spiritual experience where he at least saw eight heavenly persons and received a message from him. I want to add to the 1835 account, and these things, I want to add, or ask that, but give me a second. The 1835 account, these things can be mentioned this way. It is, it is also different. 
Um, I think it's more similar to the 38 count, but it's also different. But it also needs to be recognized that this crazy guy shows up in town, uh, Joshua the Jewish minister. And I mean, this guy is off his rocker. He's been accused of killing people in other towns. He claims to be the resurrected Matthew who wrote the gospel. And so he comes to stay with Joseph. And Joseph and them are so nice. They're like, yeah, come on in. You can sleep on our bed. We'll sleep on the sofa. And they invite him in for the night. He stays like two or three nights. And in the course of this crazy guy staying in their home, he's telling Joseph his spiritual experiences. Joseph's telling him his spiritual experiences. And um, I don't think it's George Robinson again. There's another scribe. Frederick at home. G. Williams. Yeah, Frederick G. Williams is, is a scribe in the home writing this stuff down. So... Realizing that this event is really odd and that I would not want to hold Joseph to anything that's going on in that home that night in terms of stories being told. I would just want to cut Joseph some slack in the 35 account. The 35 account was never meant to be a public account. It was just Frederick G. Williams recording what had happened with this crazy guy staying with the Smiths. Um, and, and if you want to see some interesting stuff, go read, go even just the Wikipedia page on Joshua, the Jewish minister. And you will find one of the craziest people who's ever walked this earth. <laughs> you can see Jesse and Emma arguing like, you want me to go clean the outhouse? Because this guy's this guy's guy's a crazy guy. Nobody is very leaving anybody alone while he's there. Please. Uh, well, I was just gonna mention that we don't we don't see the other half too. We're we're looking at we're looking at some slivers. Some slivers of vision. And we don't see the vision. And all the, I mean, Doctrine and Covenants 76 is a very large section. And, and he mentions that it would be a hundred times larger. It would be as big as the entire, the entire Doctrine and Covenants to describe everything that you see. We're looking at a sliver into a window into, into this experience that he had. And we're taking little pieces out. And, and if he's taking, in one account, he's taking out information and experiences that he, that he got here. And he's taking out information. I mean, that, that all has to be factored in. Because if you have a personal spiritual experience, it can mean so many different things. You can re recall certain different things. And then they can, even the meaning of those things can change throughout your life uh, on one experience that you had throughout your, you know, in one period of time in your life. And I've had times, I've never claimed to have an experience like Joseph has had. But I have had times in my life where something later on in life happens and then I look back on a previous event and I go, there was that other detail that I've left out all this time. Now I remember this happened too. And, and to grant, again, the space for this, for memories and, and audiences. But I want to add something to what you just said, um, which is we framed the first vision as a physical event. Joseph literally saw God and Jesus in the flesh. They were tangible beings. But I think we need to recognize that Joseph in his own words says, I came to lying on my back. Right? And he also calls it a vision. And, and so I would want to at least grant space that it may not have been a physical event at all. It may have been a visionary experience. And when he says, I came to on my back, like that, that expresses something. Um, there's a similar kind of experience with, with Moroni's visitations as well. Um, so to recognize that we may be talking about a visionary experience, we may want to, and the church may also, it has, if we grant, like in its manuals, it's also impose this as a physical event, but recognizing how this first vision wasn't even used for the first hundred years, like let's just grant like that may be messier than we posted and it may not be a physical event at all. Somebody had their hand up? Well and, and like 
when, when you were just saying that, you know, I know that sometimes, you know, people get inspiration from dreams. And in dreams, sometimes you're talking to someone and it's so-and-so, and all of a sudden so-and-so turns into someone else. And it's the same person. And so we kind of, you know, it's not so much like, is this this person or is this this other person? It, it's just that in our, you know, in our dreams, it's whatever is going to help us solve the conflict that comes to us, you know, whatever we're trying to work out. And so... You know, I don't know if that happens in visions, but dreams and visions sometimes get confused. So yeah, and I would I would also say Book of Mormon teaches the idea that Lehi says right that I saw a dream or other no I saw I dreamed a dream or in other words I saw a vision right and so there's this connection that dreaming a dream or seeing a vision may be somewhat of the same kind of thing right. Now, would you have some, I was going to say exactly what you said. I've seen this. I've seen a vision or dream the dream. Right. That these are similar phrases, and so we ought to grant like for Joseph, this this could all be way more messy than the way we just put our foot down and said this is how we're going to frame it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I when, when I was reading those those accounts, it kind of reminded me of the Levi's vision, and so I, that's kind of the, the idea that I have. That's type of yeah. Right, right. And so But if you change that framing as you call it, then modern church culture freaks out. Yeah, because the church every time the church has overreached it's really where the house freaks out, right? The house starts blowing up if that framing changes so much. And every time the church overreaches on something, it's really difficult to pull back without everybody seeing you step away. And so there's this there's this need to not rock everybody's boat, and if we just pulled back from everything and, and stood up front and apologized for anything we did wrong, like that's also going to hurt those who are in believing, right? Because there's, if we're all honest, like for those in this room who are believers, we built our testimonies. We like to think on spiritual experiences, but can we also admit, like we've also built our testimonies on these stories? And, and if we change the stories, what does that mean? And, and so I simply want to like give space to say like parts of our narrative are changing that can feel unsteady, that can feel a little risky. And I think we ought to grant the brethren a little charity and say like, let's not do that by just pulling the rug out and saying all these things have changed, but let's do it slowly. That feels like the that song, The Wise Man Builds His House Upon a Rock. It feels like you have been standing on rock, what you feel is rock the whole time, and then when you find out just how much the narrative changed, that rock turns into quicksand. Yeah, I, I would... <laughs> but as somebody who's walked away, you can do the opposite thing. Because I'm sitting here thinking, wow, even opening the door for it being a medical, metaphysical experience makes me go, all right, I gotta rethink this vision thing. So it can do the, I mean, you're, I totally agree with you because that's what happened to me. I'm like, I'm done with this. But it could also do the other thing that if people wanna stay or come back, they can say, oh, I can reframe it and then do my house can stand. And, and if we pose Joseph's this vision as a dream-like state, how well do you remember your dreams and how well 10 years later do you remember your dream? And how well 10 years after that do you remember? How about the next day? You get like three seconds of like understanding all of it and then it's gone. Yeah. So I, I just, again, I, I want to give validity to everybody in the room. Like, there's lots of conclusions we can draw, but just understand the space of each other. Well, like, grant this dream theory. I also think if we are going down that path, 
the reality is, is sometimes we don't remember our dreams the next day, or we do when I was a dinosaur, and... Sure. So we give space for dreams to mean nothing. Yes, my dreams to mean crazy. I really don't. Short arms or what? The break my shirt is what I'm going to push back on the dream issue. I don't see, I don't, I can see that there's revelations come through dreams. That's okay. I I think there's too much in Joseph Smith that is too tangible. I mean, he, for example, he talks about when an angel comes to see you, you should shake hands with him, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's something really tangible about that, and there's something very tangible about his description of Morona. Yeah. He talks about, he describes him in, in the utmost detail so that we know that he is there in the room with him. And I think there's something, if we, if we had seen angels ourselves, we might be able to describe a little bit about what's different about what's going on, but and I think you have to have some kind of transcendence that that lets you see both spiritually and physically. But I don't, I don't, I don't. It doesn't satisfy me to just hear that this is this first vision is a dream. Sure, not at all. Let, let me add some context. So Joseph certainly imposes that some of his experience are physical, right? Um, the three witnesses, for instance, the Book of Mormon, going out in the woods and having the experience that that is framed like is imposing a physical experience. Uh, but I would, ch- I would push back and say that on the first vision, I don't think we get much of Joseph imposing that as a physical, tangible event. That seems to come from the church 70 years later, 60 years later. And, and it's not Joseph who's saying, I saw these beings in the flesh. Now, yes, he's got a sister in the church where he says, you know, I cannot deny it, I saw them. But again, I don't know that that has to be imposed as physical. If I have a visionary experience, even if I don't see it in the flesh, like, I'm not going to deny that experience. It still occurred. Still, I saw what I saw. Um, <clears throat> it should also be noted that when Moroni shows up in the room, for instance, to Joseph, his brothers can't stay. We like to think Joseph's all by himself in a room, it's, but this is a two-bedroom cabin with how many kids do they have, Chris? How many Smith kids are there? Nine, something like that. Right? So there's like four girls and five boys or something. Um, if 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 Moroni physically showed up, there's other kids in that bed. And so again, let's leave room for it to be at least at least some of these experiences to be visionary or dreamlike experiences. Not that they were. Just that we would grant space for others to hold that perspective. I want to mention you, you mentioned that the it seems like the essays are trying to move the narrative back to a histo- more historically accurate. Yeah. Not, to, not to overreach, right? To, to pull back from pull the back. certitude of things we don't it's, know. I, I recognize there's a lot of tension in that because the brethren. I'm thinking specifically of the talk given by El Rose where he talked about there's no precedence in the church for there ever being an apology issue. Right. And so the church has put itself in a position where it can't easily back out. And so there's this kind of de facto, throw the stuff out there, we're not going to publish, we're not going to, we're not going to publish it, or we're not going to really make it, you know, big, because we're going to try to back, we're just going to try to slowly yeah. through attrition back into a more historically accurate. Or Elder Oaks could apologize. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing that bothers me is. The thing that bothers me, and I'm just going to mention that because you 
you said we could try. I mean, the thing that bothers me is I feel like um, in, I've been denied informed consent. I've been told the story my whole life, like some of the other Lutheran missionaries there, and I was never given a chance to make a decision. And now, all of a sudden, a lifetime later, I find out that there are some changes in the narrative, some of which are concerning to me. Yeah. So that's, and I'm making peace with that. But I also hope, in the interest of time, that we absolutely get to the sear stones. Yeah. Because there's some things about that David Whitmer said that are really interesting to me. And my understanding is when David Whitmer published his Total Believers in Christ, he said that some of the stuff like First Vision never happened. Yeah, he never heard, later, he never heard. No, there's, it's right. never been there. And he says all the stuff was made up later. Right. And so that's concerning to me because I don't think the church is publishing that information. And this is one of the three witnesses. And so even the, even the discussions, the essays, you are not, they're, they're coming from a faithful right. perspective, but they're still not absolutely encompassing all the information right. that's out there. I'm with you 100%. And, and okay. the Book of Mormon translation is the next one we're going to talk about. So first vision, any other questions on the first vision? Okay. So, so Book of Mormon translation. Um, the story we've been told, what time is it, Malcolm? It's 8.13. Okay. So first, or the Book of Mormon translation. The story that we've always been told, right, is the spectacles are buried with the plates that um, Nephi and Lehi and Mormon and Moroni and Alma and Alma, all, all these guys that are they're etching on these plates, they're passing these, these spectacles, and of course the spectacles aren't totally wrong, but they're passing these tools along, sort of laying all these things. And when, when Joseph goes to the hill Cumorah and, he, and he's able to you know, open the box and the Moroni allows him to take the plates home after the fifth on the fifth visit, like he, he gets these spectacles and he's using those to translate. And all of our artwork, right, can we grant that? All of our artwork shows Joseph with using the spectacles with the plates laying right in front of him. And, and the reality is that almost certainly none of the Book of Mormon we have, the 531 pages, was the seat, was the spectacles used at all for. Nor were the plates in the room or uncovered laying on a table. They were often not even in the room. They were, they were laying in a, in a barn or in a barrel of beans or wherever else, but they were not on the table being used. And that switch, you, this switch has already happened, right? The enzyme comes out and shows you this, this egg-shaped rock and says like, ha-ha, look. <laughs> and all of us in this room grew up with a story that these glasses were used. And so the essay tries to bridge this by saying, like, yeah, it probably was both of them. But that's not accurate, and here's why. Martin Harris translates the 116 pages. Those are lost. And when, when that whole episode is over, Martin is not allowed to help anymore. But we also have a story that Martin tells us where while he's helping Joseph translate the 116 pages that are not part of our Book of Mormon today, Joseph wanders off while they're out throwing rocks in the street. And Martin says that he picks a rock up that looks just like Joseph's seer stone. Puts it in his pocket, gets back in the house, right? Joseph's hat's laying on the table he's translating with, and Martin takes the rock out, 
puts it in his pocket, pulls the one out he put in the stream, and puts it back in the hat. And Joseph comes back into the room to resume translation. He puts his head into the hat, and he goes, Martin, what's wrong? It's not working. All is as dark as Egypt. And so from that story alone, we know Joseph has moved from the spectacles back to the cedar stone. And, and I say back because there's this, this story that comes out. And so I, I think it's easy to be upset or frustrated that, Joseph, that, that the church gave us the story and it's not the actual story. For the record, that seer stone was sitting in the church history vault this whole time. And it was used, it was sitting on the altar when the Manti Temple was dedicated. So the church knew it had it. But it didn't, didn't really want to tell this story, and there's two reasons. One is that Joseph Fielding Smith, again, him, he, he makes the decision. That, <laughs> I don't, I'm trying to be charitable, but I recognize that some of these people are strong personalities, and they tend to do what they want to do sometimes, where other people are more soft. And there's always going to be that within humans, right? We're all different, and some of us do things differently. Joseph Fielding Smith has the accounts in front of him, and he gives preference to the witnesses who talk about the spectacles, and he says that the accounts about the seer stone can't be trusted. But the trouble is we have so many accounts from the seer stone, from Emma, from Oliver Cowdery, from just, I mean, you name it. And, and so we just have to come to grips that the seer stone was the mode used for translation for the entire Book of Mormon. I don't think the church, I don't think the church told one over the other because of its um, craziness. I mean, I don't, if you tell an eight-year-old kid that Joseph translated by putting a rock in a hat and putting his face in it, the kid's going to go, cool, it'd be no big deal. It's only when we've learned a story our entire lives and now we're told a different story that we're like, ooh, that doesn't feel right. And, and so granting that Joseph Billy Smith and other leaders made a decision, and again, made the wrong decision in my mind, that they went with certain accounts over others. And granted that the Sears phone accounts are more reliable, but the other trouble I think the churches wanted to stay away from is the questions that are being begging to be asked, which is, what is the seer stone? Where did the seer stone come from? And, and so if we back up a little bit, in 1819, one year before the first vision, Joseph is 13 years old, hasn't had a first vision yet, and he is what they call a scryer. And so there's other scryers in the town. A scryer is somebody who has what they call a peep stone. And they would put the peep stone into a dark space, and they would put their face into that space, and then they would see things that nobody else could see. And there are, there are literally like a dozen people in Palmyra who are doing this. This is, this is part of the frontier culture. And so in 1819, Joseph goes to a young lady named Sally Chase. She's a scryer. She has a green seer stone that she uses. And Joseph says, can I use that and see if I can find my own seer stone? And Joseph uses her green seer stone, and he gets this visionary experience <clears throat> where he sees that there is a seer stone for him 150 miles away buried underneath the tree. So Joseph then supposedly, allegedly based on what he said, goes to the spot, digs it up, and now he has his own stone. And he, and he says it was translucent, white and translucent. Um, so I picture one of these like shiny, crystally rock type things. And so Joseph uses that, again, before the first vision. And he uses it to tell people where lost things are. So someone would come to him and say, Joseph, I, I've lost my horse. Where is he at? And Joseph buries his face into the hat, and he tells his neighbor that his horse is three farms over at Mr. Johnson's yard. And, and we have a few little anecdotal stories that indicate some success on Joseph's part. 
the stone that Joseph uses for the translation, the egg-shaped one, which doesn't color or anything like that, but I would guess about size, maybe something like that. Um, and that's not a potato. Everybody thinks that's a potato. <laughs> um, that stone, Joseph gets in 1822, before he gets a visit from Moroni. He's out digging a well with Willard Chase, who was Sally Chase, who had the green cedar stone. It's her brother. And he's digging the well, and, and he gets down to the, uh, they get down digging this well. And keep in mind, nobody digs wells in the 1800s unless they're water witching, right? We have to just get comfortable with this is a folk magic culture. <clears throat> so Joseph digging the well, the bottom of the well, they find this rock. There's some debate from Willard Chase later on whether the rock belonged to him or belonged to Joseph. But anyway, Joseph at least borrows it and keeps it. Or, he, or it's his. <laughs> and what's that? Wrestles and pour it. Right, right. And yeah, you're going to lose if you wrestle Joseph Smith. So. Um, so Joseph gets this rock, and it's the rock Joseph used to translate the Book of Mormon. But it's also the rock he uses for treasure digging. And in the church, we've downplayed, and Joseph, to his own, to, to at least hold him accountable, also downplayed his treasure digging. But the reality is, we know that there were at least 17 sites in the Palmyra area where Joseph and the other scryers, and Joseph was involved with most of these, were, were digging. And these aren't digs like, let's get a shovel, let's dig a, you know, a four foot circumference hole, 10 foot down, and find some water. This is finding hills, looking at the stone in the hat, being told through some visionary experience, or at least alleging, that you're seeing Spanish buried treasures in these hills. And then digging into these hills to find these treasures. And nobody ever finds them. Every time you get close, whoever the seer is on these digs would say, oh, the, we didn't do the incantation right. We didn't build the, the magic circle right. We didn't, we didn't offer a sacrifice. The, the treasure is now slipping further into the earth. We're not going to be able to get it. There's always this disappointment at the end. Um, but we have to at least grant that Joseph is heavily involved in this, heavily involved in folk magic. So is his dad. So are his brothers. So are, again, about a dozen other people in the Palmyra area. What we have to wrestle with is that before there's Moroni, a guardian of gold plates in a hill found by using a stone, Joseph is continually looking for buried treasure in hills protected by guardian spirits using a stone. And so for those who take a critical approach, like can we, can we try to understand where they're coming from? Like there's too many coincidences they would argue. On the other hand, I think the argument's left there that on some level this, this folk magic, this belief, this faith that there's things that you can't see also could be seen as a preparation for Joseph Smith and to grant for people on both sides of the room, like there's ways in which to shape this information um, and, and to grant like validity to like, yeah, that conclusion is reasonable, <coughs> but here's another way to see that and, and to allow space for that. Um, I know there's probably things I'm not covering. Okay, one thing. Um, I had a friend bring a Mormon doctrine to my house a couple weeks ago. The Mormon doctrine's been out of print since 2009, so relatively recent. And he had the section looked up, peak stones or seer stones. And Mr. McConkey says that peak stones are used by the devil to give false revelations, and then moves on to talk about Hiram Page. So I don't think it's completely, the onus isn't completely on the members of the church not to have figured this out. Right. You know, there was an article in 1973 in the Children's Friend about Peep Stones, and then in 1982, Baylor Oaks at Conference. So, I, yeah. I, you know, I'm not saying there's something nefarious or bad, but we just read what was out there. Yeah. I want to add to that. Like, it's fair. Can we grant the space that 
the church told a story, and that story was everywhere. Every night, guys. That story was everywhere, other than two places that were obscure in a long time ago. Is it fair to grant that nobody should be expected to have known that story all along? Like, nobody in the church should be like, oh, shame on you for not knowing that there were seer stones and hats. Like, I think often in the church, when someone learns new information, we go, you didn't know that? Like, I've known that forever. And I think sometimes we tell ourselves we've known it forever when we really haven't either. Is that why they don't have, like, dates on the essays, do you think? I don't know. So they could just sit there and maybe it was always there. What's that? Yes, there's a data. I don't know that there's is there a publication date on when they were put on the website and when yeah. they're gonna hold is like this is the date? Well <coughs> look that up while we continue. Well, it says originally published December two thousand thirteen on this essay and okay. some of them were originally published, every one of them. So you do have a date. So you have a date you can hold you can hold to the you can hold it to. One of the things that I'm a little bit unsure about is the uh, is your your suggestion that it was later on that the church started emphasizing the the uh, and and DM or not and trying to obscure this uh, peach stone. But I I thought it was Oliver Cowdery himself early on that used to call the translation process. He's right there. He called the translation uh, as using the Urimanthum. And I thought that I thought I think that it's fair for everybody to believe that the guy who was right there writing it down calls it a year of thumb, and that's what we should be calling it all this time. But if he calls it that, how are we going to know it's a, it's a peach stone? It's, right. it's Oliver's doing, not it's not. Uh, no, it's not necessarily Joseph. Not Joseph. Not Smith either. Well, yeah, I, I think we can historically point to Joseph Fielding Smith being aware of the varying account. Here's the trick. Oliver Cowdery is on the record saying it's with a peach stone. Oliver Cowdery is also on the record saying it's the spectacles. Oliver Cowdery is also on the record saying it's both. Martin Harris is on the record as saying it's the Urim and Thummel, the spectacles. And he's also on the record as saying it's the seer stone. Like, the, the trouble is, in church we've said, like, here's the three witnesses, here's the eight witnesses, they've got one statement. Here's what they said about the translation. Here's, and the reality is when you start diving into the history, there's a multitude of accounts and they're saying various things. And so it's not fair to pin any one of these guys down and say, like, um, he said this one time, and that's how he always framed it. The reality is these witnesses framed the translation very differently, even against their own statements. And we also have to grant some space that Joseph was very uncomfortable with his treasure data. Very uncomfortable. Always trying to distance himself from that. And that as, as people are trying to describe the translation, there may be a behind-the-scenes effort to have it be a more faith-promoting way of wording it. And so it's easy to, in your head, say, like, from here on out, I'm just going to call it a year and thumb, and I'm going to leave room in my head for that also to include the peach stones. Right? Not necessarily, you know, he's publicly trying to imply one thing, but privately maybe leaving space for another out of embarrassment over what those things were used for. But as early as Oliver, that's what he settled on. He wanted to call, he wanted to call it a year and thumb. We, we have about we have about twelve statements from Oliver, and he. You mean later on he's still calling it? But throughout his life, yes, throughout his life he he references. There's actually about 132 first, second, or third hand statements on the translation of the Book of Mormon from early church history. Uh, Fair Mormon's website has a lot of this. 
And I don't remember the other site offhand. There's another site that carries all of these. And if anybody wants to, you know, give me an email or something, I'm happy as I go back and refresh myself on what we talked about tonight. I can send out tons of sources that you can look at for all of these things. But there are so many statements on the translation, and, and the sad thing is Joseph says almost nothing. All Joseph tends to say is it was done by the gift and power of God. He does make one statement once that the, uh, and I'm saying spectacles because it's a way to differentiate, but he said the urban thumb preserved by Moroni with the plates was used for the translation of the Mormon. And Joseph Smith even gives Oliver, Oliver Cowdery one of his stones. Right, Joseph gives Oliver one of his secret stones, yes. Um, but Oliver Cowdery, I'm 100% sure, is on the record as imposing a seer stone or the spectacles on a different occasion and sometimes talking about both. So the, the question is whether we want to go through all 132 of these statements and then you just realize that Joseph says nothing and everybody else is contradicting each other. Yeah, and the, in, in all of this, Joseph is the seer. I mean, these are, these are literally crutches for a man who's going to learn a process. When you're called to be a seer, it's, you've never done it before. And so you have to go through a process of learning and growth, just like, just like we all, as we're starting to experience feeling the Holy Spirit in our lives and knowing what it means, what it's, what is it saying to us? And, and learning to, to heed it right now, no matter what the cost. And Joseph Smith went through a process of learning and developing and he was becoming the seer by himself. Would he would he need the stones in the future? He may not. Right. And and we do know there's a couple other data points that come up here, which is that um, you remember Joseph has Martin Harris take the characters to Charles Anton in New York. And Charles Anton then there's this, you know, Charles Anton says the story was happened one way, Martin Harris says it happened another. But what we do get from um, Charles Anton on his side of the story is that he speaks to how Martin said that these spectacles were too big and awkward for Joseph to use. We also have William Smith, the prophet's brother, who says that the Nephite spectacles made Joseph's eyes hurt. And so there is some historical precedence to acknowledge that these this urine and thumb of this, these spectacles were so uncomfortable for Joseph to use that he reverted back to this thing he had used before that he was having success with. Um, but again, I want to like, give space in the room to recognize like treasure digging is a complicated issue of what looks like one person getting paid to perceive that there's treasure somewhere for others to dig and find, when in reality there's no treasure there. And and so it, it's fair for those in the room who say, like that's, that's just a con game, that's just a scam. And, and to give space for those who like hold that perspective, because the evidence certainly gives room for that. Uh, I want to at least acknowledge that. When my brother first found out about the seerstone and the hacks, I told him it was a bit like a cell phone. And he said, but if I had to put my cell phone in a dark place to read it, I would think my cell phone was broken. So why didn't God make the seerstone brighter? I have no answer for that one. Right. <laughs> I, 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 do, I think it's an easy thing to go to. Like we have this device today that does all these cool things. At the end of the day, like we have to also recognize it's, it's a rock, right? We can cut the rock open, there's just more rock inside. There's not computer parts, there's not, you know. So I get like this space we want to open up and say like there's these tools, we don't quite understand them. There's people who still do water witching today. They swear by it. Whether it works or not is debatable, but there's people who deeply believe it. And, and when they use it, they feel like they're having more success in using it. 
And so again, the grant space for that. Um, yes, something I think important to me as I see that I see this as I see this is that the uh, if the plates weren't actually there. If he wasn't, if he was making a hat, and the plates weren't necessary. There's just, it's just like my mind just doesn't. I can't see how it's popping out. There's so much effort has gone into making sure. Starting in how bad is Nephi now? All the different stuff, all yeah. over history, and how it, bad are those spirits feeling today? Going, I wasted my time yeah. writing on these things, right? Like you're not even going to use them, <laughs> right? Like how do we as people's parents when we give our kids these resources and tools and they just like, no, I'm going to do some other way. You know? and, and what is Oliver supposed to do? He was told he studied out in his mind. What in the world is he studying out in his mind right. if he's not looking at some characters and trying to figure out what they mean? That's the thing. that That's why it seems like we've been tricked into believing there was some real reading of characters going on there because how in the world does that mean anything? If there's not some characters being right. But I can also see myself burying my face into a hat with a spiritual object in it and having to study it out in my mind. Like I I still don't feel like Joseph at all imposes a certain way of seeing the translation other than one single statement. And and I I think you could argue in favor of that statement. I don't I don't know that it's necessarily completely false either. Um which is what? What's the statement? What's that? What's his? What was well, he? He says something along the lines of the the urine thumb that Moroni saved oh, with the plates was intended for the use of the transition of the woman, um, which to some extent is true. I, again, I, I just these these issues get messy. I mean, we can spend three hours on any one of these. Uh, anything else in terms of the translation that specifically you want to know where something's at or why it's said this way or what's going on? Something I think is really cool, and Joseph is still using seer stones in Nauvoo. He pulls out his white seer stone, shows it to Wilfred Woodruff, he writes in his journal. At some point when they're working on the temple, this the white seer stone's being used. He gave his brown seer stone away to all of Calvary, uh, the one that he did the book of Mormon with, at least until 18. I mean, this was, I just, I think for us, for me, it's been really hard for these stair stones because they're just freaking rocks, you know? But for these guys, <laughs> they were a way of channeling the divine. Yeah. Um, there's a section of the Doctrine and Covenants now talks about Calvary having the gift of Aaron. The original wording in it was the gift of the divining rod. Like Joseph's acknowledging in the DNC that Oliver has this gift of using a divining rod. That um, Brigham Young taught that everybody would get their own cedar stones someday. Um, like, like as Chris is saying, it's prevalent. It's prevalent in everybody. If you weren't a squire, you weren't a Mormon. Like that's, I mean, you almost had to have one to get into the club. Like everybody is doing that. Lots of people, uh, as we pointed out, it's Hiram Page, right? Hiram Page is doing this. He's coming to his own revelations using his own stone. And Joseph says, like, there's only one prophet who speaks for the voice of the people and for the voice of God. And they take his stone and crush into powder. So just granting, like this is this is part of their culture and it would be I mean, what kind of um, good luck things do we do today? Black cats and walking, don't wander the ladder. And and I know some of us in this room probably still hold some of those things. And uh, you know, two hundred years from now people may laugh at us for doing that stuff, but that's part of who we are, it's part of our culture. You can't help you, you can't help but see inside, you know, inside the box that you're in. You can't just step out and go, oh, what? Not know I did that. So I think the problem that I think probably everyone in this room has is it's just we had two different stories. Like we were told something since we were young, 
And now it's like, oh wait, it wasn't this, it's this. And I know um, a few years ago I was primary president and we had, for sharing time, um, we were talking about the translation of the Book of Mormon and I asked our music leader, who's a man, um, if he would portray Joseph Smith and do it. He said, okay, but if I do it, I'm gonna use a hat. Like I'm gonna portray it that way. And I said, great. And I, you know, he's like, I hope that, you know, he even called me before and he's like, I hope this is okay. And I said, we were in the same war together, were we? No, this okay. in This is something I would have wanted to do. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, I was like, you know what, Kim, you let let the spirit guide you and whatever you feel like, you know, you should teach, do it. So he does, and guess what? None of the kids cared. They were like, okay. Other teachers in the room were like, whoa, I just really learned about this a year ago. This is amazing that you're having the kids learn this. All the kids were like, great, he stuck his head in the hat with a rock. I don't care. Like, all of this is fantastical, and whether it was with magic glasses or a year of seven or a rock, really what matters is, is the Book of Mormon and the Word of God? And that's something that I think is worth debating, whether or not, you know, all that. But I feel like how it came to be doesn't really matter. It just matters to us because we learned one way in that word. Yeah. I, I think, again, if you learn it as the first story, it doesn't matter which way. I, I think the church, unfortunately, again, overreached and was afraid of talking about treasure digging and peace stones. And so it was easier to give preference the to this. The cover-up is always worse yeah. than... Yeah. I'm with you. Let's throw that right. Absolutely. Um, let's stop for about a 10 minute break. If you guys want to get some snacks, get some drinks, please. When we get in 10 more minutes, we'll start off with the polygamy in Kirkland and Tabu. So, this, that's, that's my way of keeping you from leaving. Yes. All right. Let, let me simply say before you go into this this is the essay that I find to be the most challenging to my soul. And and so as we go over the details, let's just realize like these are really messy and let's try the best we can to hold kind of a, a kind space for everybody in the room. So I should say that too. I am I am recording tonight by the way. If I if I do anything with the audio it will have any kind of any reference to anybody's personal information will be completely gone. I'll go through it six times if I have to. Oh, I, um, right now. I just, I, no, I will. If anybody wants a copy of it, welcome to. I will be happy to send it to them. Um, so the Kirkland, so polygamy. The, the way we post polygamy in the past is we we said like, yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 men were all killed off from the violence and persecution, and and somebody had to take these widows last. And we've come up with these really simple explanations for why we as Mormons practice polygamy. And the reality is, those details really aren't the facts. They don't hold up. And so whatever reason you've been told in the past about why we did polygamy, you just have to set it off to the side. And as we get into this, you're going to sense like some of these details are messy. And I promise I'm going to do my best just to stick with the data. And I welcome any questions when we get done. But I, I, I know that some of this will make some of you really uncomfortable. And I don't have any other like way to do it other than to tell you like what the facts are, and and hopefully we can kind of come up with a way to to have a a fair and valid conversation about that. So <clears throat> some of the details. The first inkling of polygamy is as early as 1831. In 1831, 
Joseph approaches, and this is Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Lightner, it's her own words. I will grant it's when she's much older, I think she's 87 at the time that she tells this story. But she says in 1831, Joseph Smith approached her when she was 12 years old. And Joseph said that um, I've been commanded to restore polygamy, and the Lord has revealed, you're the first woman Joseph, or that the Lord has revealed to me that you will be one of my wives. And Joseph doesn't marry her until years later, but at least to acknowledge the historical data point that she's saying that when she was 12 years old, Joseph approaches her about being a plural wife of his at some point in the future. Remember, sealing keys are not restored by the prophet Elijah in the Kirtland Temple until 1836. In 1833, Joseph has what I will deem an intimate relationship and I think that's a fair way to describe it. Again, I welcome questions. But Joseph has an intimate relationship with a 16-year-old girl who's living in his home as a maid, Fanny Elder. And Fanny's 16 years old. She's working in the Smith home. She's living there. And Joseph doesn't tell Emma at all about her. William McClellan, who, granted, by this time is an enemy of the church. He was a member, now he's not. But he interviews Emma, and that's a fact. He interviews Emma later in his life, and he reports that Emma told him that she went to the barn, looked inside the barn, saw the two of them alone, and saw the whole transaction. And indicates that's the first time she becomes aware of this relationship. Um, we have some evidence that later on, this is third hand, this is all, I had the name memorized before I got Help me out. The, the, who did the sealing? It was the son. Mosiah Hancock. And it's his son, Levi Hancock. Levi Hancock, who tells us way late. No, no, no. He goes, no, no. My father was there. He did the sealing. But the trouble is, again, McClellan says that Emma said she saw the two of them alone. And Levi Hancock's account is, again, third hand, way late. And so we ought to kind of grant, like, historically, it really wouldn't hold up under critical examination, but not necessarily with William McClellan's pulled up either. We know that Joseph doesn't tell Emma about most of his wives. In fact, of two that he did tell, the Partridge sisters, the Partridge sisters were also living in the Smith home. And they're at the age, I think, of 19 and 21. And Joseph has himself sealed to these two sisters without Emma's awareness. The sisters didn't even know about each other being sealed to Joseph. We have several accounts of Joseph spending the night in their bedrooms. So we, we know from multiple uh, areas of evidence that many of these relationships were sexual. The strongest of which is Brigham Young sending many of Joseph's wives to go testify at Temple Lot, which is a case of the um, Hedrickite break-off of our faith against the what used to be the Community of Christ, which or, uh, reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is today the Community of Christ. They had this court battle. Brigham and the more in the LDS faction wanted to see the Hedrickites win, and one way to do that was to testify against the reorganized beliefs that Joseph never practiced polygamy, and to send all of Joseph's wives to testify at this court case that Joseph had practiced polygamy. Which would which would hopefully weigh in favor of the Hedrickites. Sorry, that's a that's a bunch of. Did did uh, Joseph do a lock wedding with the Partridge sisters after? Yeah, that's my next point. So okay, then he goes back to Emma after he's had himself sealed to the Partridge sisters, and he asks Emma for permission for him to take on plural wives, 
And he gets, you know, in this conversation, she finally says, consents to it, and she consents to these Partridge sisters being sealed to Joseph. He's already been sealed to them, but Aaron doesn't know that. And so Joseph creates a mock sealing where the second sealing takes place, but Emma thinks it's the first sealing. And, and we, so we ought to like, like this whole time we talk about polygamy, grant some serious compassion towards Emma. And for, and really grant why she could honestly be frustrated, why she didn't go west, and all the other stuff that comes out, and, and, and see Emma's side of this, this whole event in our history, and recognize that if any of us were in her place, we might have been a lot more frustrated and angry and ticked off. Do you have any evidence from Emma herself that she acknowledged that the polygamous affair? No, Emma, Emma, until her death, other than privately with McClellan, and some little tidbits. For instance, she has two counselors in her relief society. She's relief society president of the church. Her two counselors are plural wives of Joseph, but not, but unbeknownst to her. And we get a little bit of like that tension because they're like, oh yeah, that's horrible. I can't believe he's doing this. And they're married sealed to him as well. Yeah, they, they are publicly denying that there's any polygamy. Right. right. Yeah, Joseph is saying women that are now 50 years later saying that we, we did have. Yeah, Joseph is publicly denying it when asked on the spot. The, the women, Emma, are all, until Joseph's dead, once Joseph's dead, everybody's writing or talking about it. And, and again, they're going out to this court case and Brigham's like, okay, who, who was sealed to, to, to Joseph? Okay, great. Let's all get on a train and go to this court case and let's testify. So, there, again, it's messy because if, if we acknowledge we're doing polygamy at that time, there is some added persecution that comes. And so there are some reasons to, to not want to be fully honest about those questions, but at the same time, like, let's just, Recognize that they weren't honest about those questions. Robert, there's a moral dilemma here that's you know kind of like the elephant in the room. Yeah. It says in the Book of Mormon, "Will be into the liar, for he shall be thrust down the hill." Yeah. And Joseph is on record vilifying people who oppose you know oppose his propositions. Yeah. He's lying in his face. Yeah. The church has published ensign articles where using artwork, which seems to be a really good way to cast an inappropriate net of, of this wonderful relationship between Joseph and Emma. And I remember reading Rustown Boy yeah. and having my eyes open that the last... Their marriage had a lot of tension. Their marriage was a mess. And, and divorce and separation was threatened several times by Emma. Absolutely. And, and there was speculation about the meaning of Section 132 and Emma being destroyed. Yeah. Meaning she was afraid for her life. Right. And, and so this is dark stuff. Yeah, it is. And I'm hoping, again, any of you who are aware of this history, if I'm not bringing something out, let's talk about it. But, so you have the Partridge sisters, you've got Fanny Alger, you've got Elizabeth Rollins Lightner when she's 12. Um, Helen Mark Kimball is a 14 year old. And she's sealed to Joseph. There's no one fans or butts. We, we could debate whether there was a sexual dynamic to that relationship. Those on the faithful side of the debate are going to argue there's not clear evidence that there's intimacy. People on the critical side would say, like, why else are they doing, you know, what else is going on here? Um, but it gets messier. There's, there's a young lady by the name of Lucy Walker. And Lucy Walker is 16 years old. Uh, her family moves to Nauvoo, and her mom dies of malaria. And in fact, I think 
But I can put the quote in here. So her mother dies, and here's what she says. She says, Ten motherless children and such a mother. The youngest not yet two years old. What were we to do? My father's health seemed to give way under this heavy affliction. The prophet came to our rescue. So this is Joseph. He says, quote, If you remain here, Brother Walker, you will soon follow your wife. You must have a change of scene, a change of climate. You have just such a family as I can love. My house shall be their house. I will adopt them as my own. For the present, I would advise you to sell your effects, place your little ones with some kind friends, and the four oldest shall come to my house and be received and treated as my own children. And if I find others who are not content or not treated right, I will bring them home and keep them until you return. And then Lucy says, I wrung my hands in agony and despair at the thought of being broken up as a family and being separated from our loved ones. But said the prophet, my home shall be your home, eternally yours. And then she says the prophet you know, and his wife took us in, and they introduced us as their daughters. But the trouble is that soon after moving in, Joseph approaches Lucy Walker and tells her that God has commanded him to take her as a, as a poor wife. Now, set, set all the emotion aside for just a moment and try to understand, like, when you promise this man's lost his wife, this man you sent out on a mission, he sent the father away. And in the meantime, you bring these kids into your home and you promise to treat them as your own children. And then soon after, you tell this young lady who you're referring to as your daughter, you're treating as your own kid, and now you're, you're expressing that God has told you to take her as a plural wife. And he goes to her and he says, essentially, like, this is what he's told me. She goes home that night and she, and she prays about it, thinks about it, ponders on it, probably doesn't sleep at all. And she comes in the, the next day and she's still having a conversation with Joseph, like, I can't do this. And he says, you have 24 more hours before the gate is closed to you. And, and I want to be careful, like, we ought to recognize, like, to, to hold anything over someone's head. Elder Uchtdorf, in the most recent general conference, said that we should never use fear to get somebody to do something in the gospel. And what we find consistently in these plural marriage stories is Joseph Smith giving these women, like, this ultimatum, like, you have so much time, the gate's closed, your family's salvation is based on this... And there's a lot of things that can go wrong when someone is put under that kind of pressure and feels like their salvation, the salvation of their family is at stake. I just don't think it makes for a very healthy dynamic. And so wherever you fall on this issue, like to grant, like maybe this wasn't done the right way. Right? And, and I'm hoping that we can kind of all kind of see that. If you, if you tell a father you're going to take his children into your home, and treat them as your kids. So I'm going to pause here and say something. The struggle inside my head as I think of this issue is I'm wrestling with the idea that if Joseph's telling the truth, like what kind of God is that who commands his prophet to take for a wife a child that he's treating as his own child? Right? And on the other hand, like if Joseph, if Joseph, if Joseph's lying, like then what does that mean? And so those are the kind of things like people who struggle with this history, those are the things they're thinking about, they're trying to weigh. Um, Joseph marries, is sealed to several women who are already married to other men. Um, in, in at least one instance, besides Luke, Lucy Walker's father, we know of a man, I think it's Orson Hyde, who's sent out on a mission, right? And it's Miranda Hyde who's been, Joseph approaches while her husband's out on a mission to be sealed as a plural wife. 
And I think often when we told these stories earlier in our lives, or we were taught these stories earlier in our lives, one, most of us weren't told anything about Joseph Smith's polygamy. And for those of us who were, some of us were told, like, those sealings happened after he died. But these women just wanted to be sealed to him, and they went off in the Like, no. Joseph's married to 33 women, and um, what's Jensen's first name? Marlon. Uh, no, not Marlon. Andrew, Andrew Jensen. Uh, is an early gentleman working with the church history department, a uh, member of the church, has the general authority's approval to go do this research. He starts cataloging and dating all these. And we've got pretty good, and he's he's at the end where most of these women, um, I should say most, some of these women are still alive, and they're telling Andrew, like, yeah, she was sealed first, and then I got sealed in the spring, and so-and-so got sealed. Like, there were, there were 33 of them at probably about a minimum, and, and maybe as many as, like, 40, but some of those we don't have good evidence for. Uh, some of these women are really young, 14, 15, two 16-year-olds. We have sisters. We have a mother-daughter, Patty Bartlett Sessions and Sylvia Sessions. We've got women who are already married to other men. Um, this gets messy. And and I think, I don't even know what to make of it. Like, this is the one issue that I told you to start off with that I wrestle with, that I just don't have some beautiful answer to throw out and say, like, yeah, we can think of it this way. Um, some of this was sexual. And some of this we know is sexual, and, and we could probably assume safely that most of it was. Uh, with the exception of maybe I would want to hesitate with some of the younger folks and be careful. But Lucy Walker, for instance, 16-year-old, again, adopted into the Smith home. He treats her as a child, treats her as one of his own children, he says, and calls her uh, one of his daughters. She is interviewed at that Temple Lock case, and they say, were you, Joseph, you know, were you and Joseph Smith together? And she goes, I was his wife. And that's her answer. She kind of deflects, but why deflect if the answer is a clear-cut no? Right. If, if the answer is, because that's what they're looking for. The whole purpose of the Temple Law case was for these women to testify of the sexual dynamic. Andrew Jensen went through, and if it wasn't a sexual relationship, they didn't send them peace. They were only looking for sexual relationships to show. Was there any chance that they felt pressure to support Brigham Young's church? Is there a chance that? Yeah, that's the argument that some would make who would say polygamy never happened, and Joseph has been framed for it is that Brigham Young wanting to just, you know, step on the community of Christ so bad that he set these women out to be That's what Richard Hamlin Price of the Ardeolius Church. What is the, what is the year of the Yes, it's after him. Wait, who was dead by then? Brigham Young's past. So it's the prophet after, which we've got Wilfred Winter, Briar. So, Okay, that's not a good argument. <laughs> right, but, but you can see the church like, yeah, yeah the church, is, the church is, is in a very crisis about polygamy at that time. It, things are going wrong back in Salt Lake City. It's important for them to, to prove that polygamy is a valid thing. Yeah, and, and we'll, and we'll, deal yeah we'll get to that in a moment. There's something really cool that happens in 86 that, in fact, I just learned a year ago that's really interesting, that plays into this, this pressure that the government is mounting on polygamy and how the church handles that. Rob? Just, it's an easy question. Is, does the essay mention polyandry? Or yeah. Is that yeah, the essay mentions polyandry. It mentions Helen Mark Kimball. Okay. It, 
You can tell whoever wrote it wasn't comfortable with the data because they write several months shy of her 15th birthday. Which they only, you know, I just turned 39. I'm several months, you know, several months is a lot of time. Right. And, and so you can tell whoever you can tell whoever wrote that said, I really don't want to write 14 year old. Right. We can just say Brian Hell. It's okay. There you go. So you know, but fourteen-year-olds back then were not fourteen-year-olds of today. Yeah, that's right. They yeah, were ma- they were married. Were already married, married, and had kids. So you have to take all. We're literally living in a different society earlier. No, no, I mean back then it was acceptable. But nowadays it's. I would fight for some middle ground there. I would say it was, it happened more often, but it still would have raised eyebrows. It still would have been odd. The, the average marrying age in 1830, uh, I think is when they did the, the, 1830 would have been 20, no, but 1840 would have been the census. 1840 was 21.6 years old was the average marrying age. Today it's like 23.6, but forever it had been 22.2. So we're talking about maybe on average one year earlier, people in the United States getting married. Now part of me wants to make space and say like this is the frontier. Maybe there's a little younger age on the frontier. Yeah, but even if you go that far, it's still you're not marrying young girls with polygamy. I mean, you can't right. go that up. A 17-year-old marrying a 14-year-old maybe not a really right. guy. Right. A 38-year-old man marrying a 14-year-old. Yes. And then when we get to the later prophets, it gets even worse when we start. Yeah. When you start looking at Brigham Young, Wilford Woodruff, John Taylor, these guys would have been like 50 to 70. Marrying girls of the same age, mm-hmm. and and again, this would have in, in in outside of Mormonism, this would have raised serious eyebrows. This would have <laughs> people would have been like, "Ooh, that's not okay." Quick question on the Temple sure. Lot case. <clears throat> so the Temple Lot case didn't directly help our help the Mormon church. Didn't affect the LDS faction at all, other than it was our way of telling the community of Christ they're in the wrong because they were the biggest competitor to us. So those women who points. agreed to go back there would have had to, it, with that argument, it, it made more sense that they would do it with their own integrity than this is going to help our church because it would have been the best. At best, it's a grudge match. Yeah, we also know of other wives of Joseph's, for instance, Helen Mark Kimball, right. who lives closer to where the trial is being held, but they don't send her. They send other. So the the assumption being made on historians' part is there was no sexual intimacy, so there's no reason to send her. Whereas otherwise, every wife they sent on some level, even either ambiguously or flat out directly, testified that there's a sexual dynamic to a relationship with Joseph. So if you, the only way to deny the temple law testimonies is if you say that the LDS church sent those women out there to intentionally lie, to make the, the church. And how many were sent out, I'm sorry? Uh, 13, 11 to 13, did anybody know? I think it's like 11 to 13 women. I want to say that's the number. Um, you also have other plural wives of Joseph who are unsure of whether their child is Joseph's or not. Now, I will say, clear cut at the beginning, they've done DNA testing on tons of this. And we've gotten to the point now where we can pretty much, if we've got a living survivor of that line, male or female, we can figure it out. And to date, there's not been one case of a child being shown to be Joseph's, and they've tested almost, I think, other than two lines, they've tested all of them. But these women, I mean, some of them told their daughter at their deathbed, you're the daughter of Joseph Smith. 
So on these polyandrous relationships where the woman's already married and then she's being sealed to Joseph too, recognizing from that kind of a testimony that the sexual intimacy between both men were going on almost essentially at the same time, right? That you're not sure who your child belongs to. And they come out and they have blue eyes, Joseph's got blue eyes, your husband's got brown, so you make the assumption right away that that's Joseph's kid. So again, this gets, you know, this gets messy. Um, am I hitting all the, am I hitting all the hype? Like, is there anything else like, some major story here in the political stuff that I'm yeah. missing in the, in the Nauvoo Kirtland period. It really bugs me that, that Emma was this 22nd. 23rd. 23rd. She got, yeah. And, and, but, but in her mind, she might, she might have thought she was the first, right? She didn't even know. Like, uh, yeah. So the 23rd wife sealed to him and she would not have known she was the 23rd wife sealed to him. And so it does. It's, it's heart wrenching. And the other thing we have to kind of wrestle with is Section 132 lays out the rules of polygamy. And there's explicitly or implicitly three rules. Woman has to be a virgin, can't be married to somebody else, and you have to get the wife's consent. Joseph breaks all three of those. Of course, if she doesn't give her consent, we go ahead anyway. Because then she's essentially down to have it, right? Right. So that, that has an unhealthy, that has an unhealthy dynamic to it. Um, and, and so again, like give space for that. For those who struggle, like, like Joseph's breaking his own rules that God is giving him through 132. Um, so either Joseph's an exception to the rule or we have to grant a little more fallibility than, than what maybe we used to give. Uh, other questions about police? Well, I was just going to say we should also acknowledge that Oliver Cowdery uh, said that, yeah. that he committed adultery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, McClellan reports that Emma saw Fanny Alger, 16-year-old maid working the home, and Joseph in the barn alone, <laughs> having some kind of transaction that in that time period you would not talk about sexual intimacy in, in, in words that would give a clear indication. Uh, Oliver Cowdery at that same time writes his brother Warren Cowdery, and in that letter states that I am not backing down from my testimony. I hold the same testimony today that Joseph had a filthy, nasty, and it looks like the original wording was scrape, and then scrape is kind of written over with the word affair. And and so Oliver is telling his brother in private correspondence, like, I'm not backing down, this was an affair. And we ought to keep in mind, too, that Oliver Cowdery shortly thereafter excommunicated, and we'd like to tell the reasons for why Oliver was excommunicated, but the reality of the history is that he was excommunicated, at least for a large part, in not backing down from making these accusations. And so it's easy for us as Mormons to hold Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, and David Whipper up on these times where they're giving their testimony of the, of the Restoration, but I think it would then be just as fair to listen to these men's words when they're criticizing things that happened in the Restoration as well. Yeah, thank you. I, I forgot that. Uh, I, I don't look, I don't, I've read the evidence on that. I don't look at it that way at all. I think you're kind of giving, I think, please, I'd give it a, a little bit of I'd love to, I'd love to hear what, yeah. what you think a different approach would be. Well, for one thing, I'm Fanny Alger. Is that your pronounced Alger, not Alger? I don't know. I just, A-L-G-E-R. I think the, the only, the only thing that we have, I think the only thing we have is Alger Calgary. And then there's a statement of, I looked through a chain and saw a transaction, right? Oliver Cowdery says, a scrape, and then it crossed it out, at least the way I've read it, I've heard, read, scrape is kind of a slang, and affairs mean a sexual affair, no reference to that. 
we don't know that in 18, whenever it was, 1838, that that referred to a sexual transaction. There was, there was one of the accusations against Oliver Cowdery in, in the trial for his membership of the church was that he was spreading rumors that Joseph had committed adultery. He wasn't convicted of that. Sure. He denied, he actually, he actually went on record denying <coughs> that, uh, he, that, uh, that he had any evidence that Joseph had committed adultery. So I don't see, I don't, I don't see that at all. I don't see, he, he was, he was upset with Joseph for a lot of things, but it had, it didn't have, I mean, apparently there was some kind of an incident between Fanny Alger and, uh, and Emma. Emma got envious or something like that. There was a bit of an, a bit of a row of some sort. <clears throat> Oliver was caught in the VA, as far as I could see. And then that's what, that's all we have about Fanny Alger. And so now we think that there's, we kind of, you know, in, I just don't think there's enough evidence to conclude based on what, what that is that Fanny Alger what had sex with Joseph Smith or was a wife of Joseph Smith. I think that one is not. <coughs> I, I, would, I would throw back, I would push back and say it this way. What would be worthy of Emma saying that she saw the two of them alone and saw the whole transaction? And what would be worthy of Cowdery believing that would be so scandalous that everyone's telling him to be quiet and he's so persistent that it contributes to his excommunication? And, and so you have to come up with a scenario where whatever interaction is happening between Fanny and Emma, or uh, Fanny and Joseph, is so innocent that those two things happen, but yet those two are so persistent in seeing it and describing it that way, and for Oliver Cowdery's case, willing to undergo a communication at the expense of it. That, that, that is not evidence. Uh, that's just, not evidence. Sure. I'm, that's I'm, not evidence. Sure, but I'm not posing it as no. absolutely happening. I mean, there are all kinds of scenarios that Emma could be. Would you give me one? Okay, that they saw a transaction? I know, but give me one where Emma... What would be the transaction? What would would be the transaction that Emma would have to tell William McClellan? They could be fighting about, they could be fighting about claiming the house for that matter. So she's telling William McClellan in an interview about Emma, or about Joseph and Fanny fighting about cleaning the house. We're not talking, I'm not talking about McClellan. So McClellan is, the only statement is, I looked and saw in, in the in there and saw a transaction. Right, right. But, but what, so what was so transaction that Emma thought was important to tell William McClellan that she? And again, I'm not holding the we ground. Know the circumstances under which she said that. She said well, there's, 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 there's one more. There's one more really important data point. Eliza Snow, one of Joseph Smith's plural wives, is asked to make a list of all of Joseph Smith's plural wives. To Andrew Jensen. And Fanny Alger's on that list. Yes. And I believe about Eliza Snow. So again, <laughs> well, I'm not trying to draw the conclusion. I've not once said like this absolutely happened, but I think we ought to give space to like when you look at the data, it's a reasonable conclusion to make. She's That's all I'm saying. On search. That's all I'm saying. The wives of Joseph Smith. She's listed yeah, she's, as well. Yeah. 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 Based, upon, based upon that statement, and the other is saw a transaction. That's it. But it's significant enough that Emma is is in anguish telling William McCall about it. So now it's in anguish over something. Yeah. Right. So but 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 you have to also keep in mind William McCall is asking her about Joseph Smith's polygamy. So when you take the context of all of this, I'm simply saying it's a valid conclusion to make, and the data is absolutely gives one to go that direction. 
She was married. The church recognizes that they were married. Is that true? Yes. No, so not yes. Yes. She's married. She's a wife. That's because Elijah Snow said. Yeah. And yeah, Elijah got no reason. In my opinion, the church is really, and they've really admitted way too much. I mean, I mean. We all agree in this room right here. So we all agree. I'm going to stop you only because I think you're holding a position that that everyone else in the room is saying like, yeah, the, the evidence. Fanny Elders, no ifs, ands, or buts. She's sealed to Joseph Smith, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts that Emma had turmoil over whatever that relationship was, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts that Oliver Cowdery thought it was an affair. And you can go back to the word scrape, but if you go to the 1830 dictionary, scrape is it is this you know it's one. It's one of those words that you can take that meaning, and that's kind of what he's saying. And it's Warren Cowdery who does write over top of it. I believe it's in his handwriting, the word affair. But there's no offense or buts that Oliver saw something scandalous, that he was willing to hold his ground and say, I'm not budging on this. And he's excommunicated, at least in large part, because he would not back down. No, that's not true. Well, in the 1828 Bible pulled up there, scrape means a rubbing sound. <laughs> Again, I'm trying to hold this space for people on both sides, but I, I don't want to diminish for those who struggle with this why they struggle with it. Please. Not not relating to what we've just been talking about, but relating to particularly the, the, the events and the things that took place with respect to to polygamy and, and that, and the revelations that that would have come, that did come, you know, would come. These things always come in steps and phases, and they're, they they receive information and they start to administer it. Just like just like today, we're we're just learning how to use the corns of the seventy. When I, my father was a seventy when I was a kid, you know, now we the corn of the seventy is completely different and administered because we're learning how to use it. Well, they were learning how to administer, and they were getting revelations in steps and phases. And maybe they, maybe they didn't administer it very well, you know. And then, and then the, the, the Lord would go ahead and say, "Okay, now we need to know this, and we need to be administering this way." And so it would have come in steps and phases in, in anything that we are, that we do within the church. Right. And I, and I want to hold that space too, right? Like that's a valid perspective that this would have been a slow development, that there may have been. Um, a learning curve and that mistakes may have been made or not even the word mistakes but just doing something in the world preferred it had been done a different way but gives his servants a chance to implement something and then come back later for correction right? So I'll break that as well. Well, in the dictionary Chris missed the one that might have something to do with this to scrape also meant to get acquainted with someone coming from like when you scrape the down, ground and you curtsy, I guess that's where it originated. But it, it could mean a scrape would be to get oneself acquainted. Right. That was a filthy one. A dirty filthy one. And again, it's, it's, you're right. I mean, it's in an era, too, where they're just not going to say they're it. They're not right. saying it. So there's no concrete evidence. All I'm trying to do is pose the data in a way that we can recognize both sides of the room and, and the conclusions that we draw. <laughs> Okay, any other thoughts on polygamy? Okay, thank you. Um, that's it? No, 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 that's thank you on ending that one. <laughs>
I'm uh, setting that one aside. Yes. And look, uh, just the plural marriage in Kirtland and Nauvoo. The rest of it's not as uh, full of tension as that subject is. Blacks in the priesthood are next, right? Let's do it. All right, we're going to avoid the Okay, let's do race in the priesthood. So race, we got about 40 minutes left. This is a good one to, to make sure we tackle. Um, race in the priesthood. So if we go back in time, Brigham Young in 1852 implements the race ban. What year? 1852. 1852 till 1978. All the rhetoric from leaders is that those of color are less valiant in the pre-mortal line. By the way, we also taught that handicapped kids at one time were less valiant. Today we teach them they're more valiant. But in the past we used to teach them they're less valiant. How far past was that? Uh, not too long ago, probably just before President Kimball and back. Do you remember that? I was just feeling. So from 1852 to 1978, we teach that those of color were less valued in the pre-mortal life, that they had the curse of king, that interracial marriage was sin, and if you go back far enough, if someone entered interracial marriage, God condoned you killing them on the spot, um, which was part of Brigham Young's blood atonement teachings. And so you have the prophet, and you have all the members of the Quorum of the Twelve, generation after generation after generation, teaching that it's doctrine. We have them using that word. We have them teaching that this is from revelation from God. And and they're adamant. Like, this is what it is. And we do get one quote from Brigham Young where he says that something along the lines of the, the those of color will not get the priesthood until every essentially white person has gotten it. And so we like to say, yeah, see, he said someday they'll get it. But the reality is his timeline was way after when we did, if that makes sense. He put it long after every person with white skin got the priesthood. And so I don't think it's fair to use that revelation as a revelation. To say, like, yeah, he said they did someday, because it's not exactly meshing. Um, you even have in the 1940s, George Albert Smith, 1947... George Albert Smith and his first presidency are having a correspondence with a Dr. Lowry Nelson or Dr. Nelson Lowry, I forget which order. And Dr. Lowry Nelson or vice versa. Um, and if anybody knows it, I'll just, if we can say it the right way, I'll just say it that way the whole rest of the time. Lowry's, it seems like it was Lowry's last night. Nelson Lowry, let's go with that. Nelson Lowry. And so Dr. Nelson Lowry says, like, guys, we're beginning to grow in some of these other countries. We should, we should probably change this policy we have. And the first president, he writes him back and says, it's not a policy. This is doctrine. This is, this is set in stone. This isn't, this isn't going away. And so in 1978, you have President Kimball receiving this revelation to give all worthy males the priesthood and to allow both genders to now go get saving ordinances. And keep in mind, this didn't just affect men and priesthood. This was also men and women from being able to go to the temple and receive the essential saving ordinances for salvation. And yes, they can get it on the other side, but the, 
let's at least recognize the hurt and harm and trauma and offense that we caused. And then to step into the essay, the essay acknowledges that today the church disavows those teachings as racist theories. And, and the struggle for people who, who are having a hard time with this is the idea that prophets, seers, and revelators can be certain that they've discerned something from God. And the membership of the church, so certain, and both would say by spiritual experience and Holy Ghost and feeling good, whatever those things are that come with the Spirit, and saying like, we felt all this and we know we're doing the right thing here. Only to have later leaders completely disavow it. And, and the questions that raises for like, how do we know that? Like, how do we know when something's true if prophets, seers, and revelators in the membership under them, generation after generation, are certain that we've got revelation here and we've got it right, only to disavow those teachings as false theories of the past. And so that's the wrestle that we're having to do as we jump into the race and priesthood essay. The race and priesthood issue is a serious one by itself, but there's an overarching issue of when is a prophet a prophet? And how do we know when a prophet is a prophet? And is the Holy Ghost good enough to know that if the members and leadership of the past seem to have thought it was by the Holy Ghost only to disavow those things as false today? And so I think it requires a theological wrestle of us to say like, oh, maybe there's things I know are true today, but maybe that would be a disavowed theory 50 years from now, and maybe I ought to put more thought. And I think it's a big reason why Joseph, um, and, and obviously as a believer, we would say the voice of God, but why the voice of God says we need to do things by study and by faith. Because I think when we do things by faith alone, there's a risk of, of being off in the path a little bit. And I think when we do things maybe by study alone, there's a chance to miss some really good spiritual things. And so I think if we mix that study and faith and recognize like, yeah, we could be wrong right now today on something. We could, you know, whatever it is, pick your issue in the church that, that you think you're absolutely certain got right, and maybe now it's up for grabs. And that's the that's what comes out of this essay. It's not just race and priesthood. It's having to deal with how do we know what a prophet is a prophet? And, and once you answer that question, then you have to apply it to these issues in the path and say, then why did they get it wrong? And I think that causes us to let go of some of our certainty and to recognize that this does get messy. Thoughts on the race and priesthood issue? Any questions? Please. We can almost teach, um, treat religion like science in that all theories are tentative. Right. No matter how much certainty you place on them in a given moment. Yeah. And, and I hope you're sensing as we go through these issues. Like, I truly believe there's not one facet of Mormonism right now that isn't shifting and changing from what we thought 10 years ago. I mean, if you just go, go to your house and pull Mormon doctrine off the shelf and flip through the pages and ask yourself how much of this stuff would the brethren want to testify of today? Who's going to admit they still got Mormon doctrine? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 
Bill, when did correlation start and happen? That's Joseph Fielding Smith again. It was Harold and me, and it was Joseph Fielding Smith, it was David O'McKay, Joseph Fielding Smith, Harold and those guys. And when he says correlation, what he's saying is, if you go back and find out the time, Wards were very fluid and unique, and wherever you went in the church, that ward and the state would be doing different things than the ward and states across the way. And at some point, the church saw itself growing, and leaders like Joseph Billy Smith said, like, we all have to be on the same page. So let's let's take all the thoughts and stuff we have, let's begin to let's define everything, put everybody on the same schedule, put everybody doing the same events, have everyone on the same lesson, and call it doctrines of salvation. So, <laughs> one of the things Joseph Smith. Yeah. He was called his church historian in 21, and he dies, what? Late 60s? Late 60s. 69, 70, Yes. He becomes a prophet. He dies in 1972. Okay. The reason I bring that up is because there, you, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to think for yourself. <laughs> but I mean that. Yes. It's also dangerous to let other people do the thinking for you. Yeah. So it's it's a catch twenty two. It is. And the church, the culture, this top down culture with this you know black and the grace and the priesthood thing is a perfect example. Because if you went against this like that, Eugenie one night, not him but the guy Lowry. Yeah. He was threatened. His membership was threatened. Yeah. They, in those letters. They told him to be quiet, stop talking about it, or else his membership was in jeopardy. And he turns out to be prophetic. Yes. Right? He turns out to be like, this is probably not a doctrine, and if we're going to grow in the world, we're going to have to make this change. And he was 100% spot on. So we also recognize that if we step back in the past, there's a certain way to be Mormon. Yeah. And, there's, and there's people who are pushing against that who today would be fully in the church. And maybe ask yourself the same question right now, which is, are there Mormons today who are seen on the margins? who 50 years from now will be in the center of the church. And I think unless you simply want to hold ground that really isn't tenable, I think the answer is there's no advance or buts, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I hope so. You can think whatever you like as long as you don't tell anybody else what you're doing. Yes. <laughs> but, but, but that is not, that, that, is, that idea is human. There's no human on this planet who can't think what they want, right? So there's nothing unique about that being a special privilege within the church, right? Okay. Please, that's not that's not unique to our history. Christ's church, Christ's original church, after he left, if you fell asleep in church, you were excommunicated. If you didn't show up twice, you were excommunicated. Right. Two hundred years later, you got your head chopped off. Yeah. Sure. So yeah. It's not unique. No, it's not. There are challenges that we face as as members of Christ's church and kingdom. And I would say it's human nature. Human nature is to say, like, my tribe's the best tribe. My tribe's the good tribe. And I'm going to build walls and fences around my tribe. I'll try to bring people into my tribe, but I'm also going to shame and marginalize people who walk up, right? And, and I would, let's tie this into Mormonism for a moment. And I'm not saying it's anybody's fault. This is human nature. But notice that anybody who, who their faith changes and they step back from Mormonism, notice how we always blame the individual for having done something wrong. And notice no one ever says, like, yeah, for us in the group, like, yeah, it's our fault too. 
we did this. We, we contributed. We, we didn't tell people the full history, or we, we painted this issue as simple, or whatever. Pick your reason. I, I think all too often when people struggle with this history and they start to walk away or step back, we try to find some reason to say, like, they're less than, because it makes us feel better about still being in. Like, of course, I'm not deceived. I'm, I'm here in the same ground. But the reality is, like, let's honor their journey as much. So let me give you an idea. If someone comes out of Catholicism and joins Mormonism, right? They left their old tribe. They come into their new tribe. What do we do? Oh, please, give your testimony. Get up there and talk more. Say more. Let's praise the Lord. Man, you, you just made such a difficult and honorable decision. But what happens when someone walks out of our faith? They only would have read more and prayed harder. Like, do you see how that's talking on both sides of our mouths as a culture? Like, we need to honor people who come in, and if we do that, we also need to honor them if their journey takes them out. Like, like why do we have to make somebody less spiritual, less of a truth seeker to leave than they were to come in? Like, it's just a journey. And we're all spirits. And if more, like, and, and listen, again, I say this as an active follower of Mormonism, as a believer, as one who's in the faith. But, like, Mormonism is 0.2% of the human population. If that's how God's carrying out his plan, that's a horrible plan. Like, it is. So, if 99.8% of God's children are just like, yeah, I'm not Mormon, I don't, know I, I don't know if I get all the same access to the chance to get back to it, that's silly. So we just have to step out of our tribe for a second and say, like, Mormonism is 0.2% of the human population. If the church is true, and I believe it is, if it's true, like, I don't need to sweat the other 99.8, the choices they make, because God obviously has some way provided to take care of them. And his plan is just as effective for them as it is for me inside. Like, you don't have to be Mormon to get back to God. That's, that's, but that's a, that's a thought we have when we're in the tribe and we only hold that in-the-box tribe thought. Like, ooh, yeah, they gotta, they gotta do this the Mormon way, or else we might lose them forever. I don't think so. Like, God is bigger that. than Mormonism. We do. I feel like yeah. we teach that, and that is one of my biggest problems yeah. because, and I had a conversation with one of my best friends who left the church, and I was saying, like, yes, I think you'll go to heaven. Like, I don't think old anymore. She was like, Courtney, this is like mind blowing information. You're telling like, this is not what the church teaches. But it's true, like, we have this, this is the true church, this is the path, this is the straight and narrow, and, you know, like, and that's why we're focused on missionary work, we're focused, and, like, oh, my gosh, we got to get to we got to baptism. My sister is, like, doing baptisms for the dead for family members of ours that, you know, we've never even had a relationship with, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, but she, like, in her mind, is, like, doing them this huge favor, and it's just, we got to stop, like, right. We are in a good place where we teach good things, where we can be good people, and we can grow our relationship with God and, and whatever. But we're not better than anyone else. If I'll give you two seconds, I promise. Um, if I was a missionary today, I did serve a mission by the way. Again, I joined some team. I just didn't make a decision. So if I had gone on a mission today, if I had known what I know now, if somebody was happy and and felt fulfilled in their spiritual walk. I, I would feel no need to bring them into Mormonism. On the other hand, if I felt like Mormonism was going to benefit their life and going to add some value in some way, like, then amen. And, and I think we need to kind of grab those eyes. Um, Orson F. Whitney once said that the non-members of the church are among its auxiliaries. And, and we need to get back to kind of understanding some of those things that have been said earlier in our history that I think are just brilliant 
statements. Um, he did. He said it's too grand, too big for any yeah. one people to. It's too, it's too arduous a work for the Latter Day Saints. Who said that? Orson F. Whitney. Um, Corman the Twelve, member an Apostle of the Lord. Did Joseph Smith say something about Sidney Rigdon? I, I now you've done the work. Now I've created a greater work for you. Yeah. Before he was a man, before he was Joseph's counsel. Yeah, and we also recognize that before the church is even organized in 1830, April 6th. Jesus, prior to that, says, any who come unto me and repent are of my church. And so we ought to see the broader view that God sometimes uses the word church or his people in, and recognize that whether Mormon or non-Mormon, Catholic, Muslim, God's working to bring all of his children home. And that uh, makes me think of the scripture, can the eye turn to the hand and say, I have no need of thee. Right. Because it is the body of Christ, and we are, all of his religions are the body of Christ. And we, each of those religions have something very valuable to bring to the table, and together we get the whole. Yeah. And if we assume, if we assume for a moment, everybody in the room just plays the game, assumes that the church is true. The one thing the church provides that it says everyone needs is saving ordinances. And also, at the same moment, recognize that God has provided a way where everyone gets those, whether in the church or not. So God's already included a plan that works just as hard to rescue every single soul inside or outside the church. So there's no need to fret over whether someone's Mormon or not. But that's why the saving ordinances of the temple are taking place and why they are so important and why they are necessary. Sure, but, but God seems to sense that nothing is lost whether you get those as a dead Baptist, dead member of the Islam faith, or whether or whether you're a Mormon in mortality. Uh, I, I agree, but you're, you're also weaving out a three-dimensional value of everything that goes on. Because when, when we're doing temple ordinances, that is a part of our going after the lost, the lost sheep. Sure. We, we, they, we say they depend upon us, but we depend upon the one. We're going after the one. We're becoming more like the Savior. Yeah. The word religion means religios. Ligament, ligament comes from that word. It means to bind back, to bind back to God. And it implies the saving ordinances. Jesus himself said to the woman at the well, you worship me, not know not what. Salvation is of the Jews. She had to come to them to get the ordinances. Now, I agree, they can get them in time, whether they're alive or dead. But it's, it is necessary for us in our growth process to do the work. We, yeah. we think we're just trying to handle these challenges that we're facing. We're also to be serving one another, whether they're alive or whether they're dead. Absolutely. But can you grant at the same time that the unique spiritual work that we're doing within Mormonism, that there are other unique spiritual works of reciprocation going on bringing truth in to other, in other oh, yeah, things? Absolutely. They're bringing truth and love. And we recognize like there is truth, there's truth in Mormonism, there's also truth in every other religion, that Mormonism doesn't have all truth, it doesn't even claim to have all keys. Um, especially Kimball said we still don't have the keys of the resurrection, or of creation in terms of like what happens after this world, right? So we're, as Latter-day Saints, we're saying like we don't have it all. We have some. Others have some. The one thing I don't think we've speculated on or said in Mormonism is that other faiths have unique truths that we don't have. But I would at least say, can we open up space 
to other religious walks having truth that we don't have. And, and what I would use to preface that point is to say, like, in our own theology, we acknowledge that George Washington, the other founders of this country, were inspired. They had a work to do. In some ways, they were called and authorized, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we acknowledge, like, the reformers of religion, Martin Luther and William Tyndale and all those guys. Like, those guys were called and authorized by God to do some special work. And all we have to do is take one more little baby step to a 1978 First Presidency letter where Spencer W. Kimball, his First Presidency, said that uh, Muhammad and Confucius, Confucius were given spiritual light, which is revelation, right, to direct and declare truth to their people. And now is it only one more little step to say, is Apostle Pope Francis, in some ways, called and authorized to teach spiritual truth to his people? And could, could the truth he's teaching be unique to what he's saying and not found here? And I, and I would leave room for that. I don't think people have a trouble, but if I understand you and I understand you, you're not disagreeing. No, we're not disagreeing at all. It's but just, I think a, what you're saying is that, that the Mormonism belief is eventually all those people have got to have the same words. Two sides of the same core. Is that what you're and saying? What, what, what I, what I want to softening it though. Like when you say that, well, there are people in this room who are no longer Mormon and, and that feels too edgy. That feels like you're saying like, I still, you're still telling me at the end of the day, I still would be better over here. And I'm wanting to say like, Maybe not. No, maybe I'm not. Just talking about me. Sure. <laughs> sure. I'm just talking about me. Gotcha. But 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 the the tendency is to to be either one or the other. And it's not. No. You say because if we if we look at it with the soft value, we tend to say, okay, well these really aren't important. So we devaluate the temple and the ordinances, and then we have to go back and devaluate Christ and 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 his words and, and the temples throughout the history of yeah. time. And the plan of salvation. See how it all starts yeah. to crumble. But, but so, I, no, it's all a part of the plan. I would take a different stance, which I would say that the ordinances are so beautiful and so important and so crucial that God has made a way that all of his children will get those. And and think about it. If it was such an exclusive thing, like being Mormon is where you got to be, yeah. it, those, those ordinances would only be available yeah. inside. Well, then can we go to the temple ordinances? The, the, the other thing that, that we tend not to talk about, we talk about it as though we're just getting them, right? Just one time. Right? We don't see the value yeah. of the continuing, like going to the sacrament table and participating in the sacrament and, and receiving the benefit, going back to the temple, yeah. it has a powerful impact upon our, upon our individual lives and our growth in the relationship with our Heavenly Father. Amen. And let me, we want to move on, but let me at least kind of tie that in. So I agree with you. For a Latter-day Saint, those temple ordinances are life-changing, right? And they have an effect on us throughout our life. And I will say bluntly, like, there's parts of the temple I, I don't like, and they rub counter to who I am. But I would also say in the same breath that when I come out of the temple every single time, I feel a greater desire to be a better person, right? So I want to say amen to that. Like, that's the temple ordinances for a believing Latter-day Saint do something. There, there's something active in that person's life. But I also want to like say, as great as that is, there's other things. Can you look around and say there's other things going on in their lives? That is that same relationship and those same things happening. And and to step out of our own shoes and to say, like, oh, the mechanisms in their faith, the rituals in their faith have just as much power and ability to them as ours do to us. And I think once we see that, we'll grant more space for others to be different 
and to have a whole different ground. But the reason why the church will never validate people leaving is because they see people who have left as completely different from those who never joined. People who have left will not have forgiveness in this world or the next. Basically, they think they're going to become sons of perdition. Non-members can at least have a temple work done for them and get to such a kingdom. Sure. Apostates never will. Sure, but I hope you see tonight there's a lot of things we've taught in the past that we've overreached on, and I would make some space for this to be just one more. Again, if Orson F. Whitney is saying, like, Orson, I wish I had a quote from you, Orson says something to the extent of God intentionally keeps some people out of the church. Because they do a greater work outside of it, right? right. And, and even for those who are in, like, I, I have hands-on experience with hundreds. And, and if we talk about people who message me outside of that I don't actually meet in person, I'm talking thousands. And these people, some of them, their lives are worse. Some of them, their lives are way better. Some of them are less spiritual. Some of them are way more spiritual. And again, I think we like to say, like, when you leave, because you left over milk and strippings, this is what happens to you. And I think the reality is humans change and grow and diminish and excel, and that's just the human journey. Yeah, we, we may validate it, but the church will never officially validate people. Well, except Elder Hoopdor kind of did, right? He says, like, we've made mistakes, and some people think for years whether to leave a church or not, and we ought to respect their agency and the spiritual choices that they make. That seems like a good, healthy first step to say, like, you know what, let's not judge them, and let's honor their journey for what it is. Sometimes I, I recognize, and I agree with, the, the qualification you put on it was the true believing Mormon. The temple can be a unifying, beautiful experience. Yeah. Um, there are a whole group of people out there where that's exactly the opposite. And I'm thinking about the families where um, two people have to get married and those who are not members of the church don't get to go to the wedding because of the policy of, you know, there's a policy where marriage happens and and you don't, because you're not a Mormon, because you don't, you don't get to see your daughter. Or you're the chocolate of a gay parent, right? Right. That there are some that you can't partake of. And that later. is an extremely divisive. Right. So that, that creates hate. I think it's easy when we're in the box within a tribe, it's easy to say, like, this is my experience. It's incredible. Everybody, if they did what I did, would have this incredible experience. Right. And I think the reality, when you, when you begin to get out of the box, you realize that all of us are so different from each other. Some of us learn by written words. Some of us learn by audio. Some of us learn by seeing uh, uh, an action take place. Um, we're all so different in whether we're emotionally tied to things, whether we're logically tied to things. God created that diversity. And as diverse as we are, we ought to expect that when actions happen, we're going to respond to those actions differently. Like, that's human nature. Um, I don't think it's fair to say, like, if you do these seven things, then you'll turn out just like him. I just, I just don't think that works. No. All right, so I'll move on. We've got a few minutes left. Um, any other real quick thoughts on the essay we just covered? Which was recent precept. Right? <laughs> 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 that was a good stop, though, right? <laughs> I like the pushback, by the way. I like it. When people are in the room pushing back, I, just, I, I want to be careful when comments close face off, because there's two sides in this room and a lot of people in between. <laughs> and I want to leave room for everyone to walk out of here feeling like, we talked about the history, but at the end of the night, we left space for everybody to hold the ground there. They came in holding, although I do hope people at least think about the data points, and, and I hope it opens you up to new ideas. I just want to say one thing. 
that I think we need to be careful that we don't come away thinking that even though they said it was doctrine, and I'm going to go back to Rickson, the priesthood, sure. okay? that even though they said it was doctrine, during that period it was doctrine. They were prophets of God. They believed they were receiving revelation. And so, and for their day and age, that may have been exactly what needed to happen at that time. When the change needed to happen, and it did happen, and there are probably a lot of us in here who have an experience with knowing people. We had a wonderful family in our ward. All of them thought they were members. They all held callings. They thought their records were lost when they came from Africa. And when that announcement was made from the pulpit, they went to the bishop immediately and said, can we be baptized? Everybody was stunned. They were baptized that night. The priesthood was given to the father who baptized the rest of his family. It was a wonderful, joyous occasion. But it was time then. But it may not have been time before then. But that doesn't make them less of a prophet and less of having received revelation. Okay, but, and, I, and I honor that. My caveat I would throw back is the actual wording of the essay. What's, what's the definition of doctrine? Well, that, I don't know that we could come up with a definition that would actually be fluid and work with every oh, situation. Oh, come on. Those I'm serious. A long time. What's the definition? No, if you're, gonna say it's, if you're gonna say it's eternal truth, that's true, right? It's just it's forever, and it's true. I think we can all find exceptions to that. This being one of them, even if we take your perspective, we say it changed. And so that's not doctrine if it has to stay one way eternally forever. Um, I don't have a good definition. That doesn't, that doesn't hold, because there was a period of time where the only ones who held the priesthood were the Levites. Sure. Right. They, you know, they, it was, it was doctrine. It was right. doctrine, right? And so doctrine doesn't doesn't necessarily connote that it's never it's never going to change. Right. It's just what this is. This is the the espoused. Uh, I'm going to have to help. Well, I, I think it's I messier. Think when, I think it's I think it's messier when it comes to did God want blacks to have the priesthood? But in the essay, it also says that blacks were less valiant in the pre-existence. That isn't something that can change from period to period. Is that doctrine? Did that have, that is that is a very you know it either they either were or they or weren't, and right. we have now disavowed it. Yeah. Uh, so at least on at least on those few things. So so the essay. I just want to, let's finish with this. We'll do another one. The, the quote on the essay is: Today, the church disavows the theories advanced in the past. Disavows them. There's a certain connotation to that word. That black skin is a sign of dis, divine disfavor, a curse, or that it reflects unrighteous actions of the premortal life. Mixed race marriages are a sin, or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past, present, any form. It feels like they're saying that of the past, we're no longer going to own that as being true even then. Even then, that's moment. It seems like they're saying, like, no, it's, it's, it's a racist theory, it's no longer true. And, and I'm okay, like, if you want to make space for, like, like to, to to say, like, no, I don't guess we're saying, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with where did it. Where did it come from in the first place, though? Where it comes yeah. from the Bible and during that period of time. And I think that's 
the tradition that was handed down. Right. Right. Except that well, Joseph Smith gave blacks Christians. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. Be really right. careful. Right. So there's a certain way to interpret. We we all have certain ways of interpreting scripture. And sometimes as a culture, we have a way of interpreting scripture. And Brigham Young in 1852 has some events happen in his life where there is a black man in Nauvoo who makes some really uh, immoral choices and ends up having some inappropriate relationships with some white women in Nauvoo. And for Brigham Young, you can see that in that moment is the moment where he says, we're going to do something different. We're going to put these people as far away from these people as possible. And, and again, all these leaders are claiming it goes back to revelation, but we don't have we don't have an actual revelation. We don't. We have Brigham Young making a statement in eighteen. Which one? The one you were unfolding said this is going to blow your mind. The one that was one thirty-two, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What, was there? Was there a word from the legislature? Is that it, that's in eighteen fifty-two? In the essay. Yeah. Quote nine. So eighteen fifty-two, right? Is the year. So he stands up and he gives that. So. It's easy to say, like, prophet stood up and he spoke, and therefore it must be an actual God coming down and saying, I just don't know if that's fair. Um, we got a few minutes left. Let me let me quickly go over a couple others that are important to me. One of them is one thing. So are you describing a policy or are you describing a doctrine? Because policies can change. Doctrine, I, mean, I think we're right. We've taught that doctrine doesn't change, but doctrine changes. Or we find out that what we thought was doctrine isn't, and now we have to revise to a new position, which we now call doctrine today. But, but realizing that fallibility... I'd be interested in yeah, what you're saying, because was it policy or was it doctrine? Or maybe they thought it was doctrine. Doctrine, yeah. Doctrine. 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 But then could well, we well, believe things today that we call doctrine? Well, what about yes. just changing the Something that's changed over time. Would we call that a doctrine or would we call it a policy? Right. I don't know that everybody in this room understands that the doctrine of God has changed over time. Yeah. So throw that I, I don't think there's a single <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's a single doctrine in our church that we would say, yeah, that's doctrine. That if we go back far enough to the origin of our church hasn't shifted and changed. I agree. Everything okay. seems to move Cool. Um, one of the essays is the DNA in the Book of Mormon. I want to be really quick. The all this DNA Science has evolved and it's gotten better. And so now we can go into these Native American tribes, we can test their DNA, and there's there's essentially no Israelite DNA, with the exception of a few tribes. But again, the science of today says like that DNA is entering the gene pool way too early or way too late to be Book of Mormon uh, DNA, right? Book of you know, Nephites and Lamanites. And in response to this, the church has changed its heading in the Book of Mormon to say, instead of the principal ancestors, it says among the ancestors, right? So there's this wording change. And I would simply throw out that in the past, if a, if a Hawaiian and a Samoan and a Mexican and a, an Indian and a Native American stood up here, and we, you know, 20 years ago, we just said, yeah, those are all Lamanites. And I would say that the, the data today tells us that if we got a hundred of those people standing up, we couldn't point with any certainty that any one of them is a Lamanite. And so we as a people have to back off from telling whole peoples that they are Lamanites. Because think about it, if they're not a Lamanite, what harm are we doing to their identity? What harm are we doing to their culture? By taking a, a Mormon Samoan 
and saying, yeah, that Samoan thing, that wasn't that didn't last that long. Actually, here's who you are. You're in the Book of Mormon. Here's your people. Like, we're, we're causing them to lose some of their rituals and the things that are important to those cultures. And I, and I just want to say, like, I think that's really deep, deeply harmful and hurtful. And so we as a people have to back off from claiming anybody's a Lamanite. But we also want to do a theological issue, which is the Book of Mormon is written to the Lamanites. It is made to go to the Lamanites. And if we no longer know who a Lamanite is, then where do we take the Book of Mormon to the main people it was written for? And so that's also another theological wrestle we have to get into. Genetic ancestry is different from genealogical ancestry. You can have a genealogical ancestor and you can have no DNA from that ancestor. Yes. yes. So in any one instance, we can find that happen. Here we're talking about the entire continent. Everyone on America could be um, gen genealogically have an ancestor who was a main writer. Right. But not genetically. So we could make the argument that sure, some of these people are still Lamanites. And that if we took their family tree back far enough, that they're tied into, you know, Ammon, right? But the reality is we no longer could say that conclusively on any one individual. And once you say they're not all Lamanites, then we need to back off from claiming any one people are all Lamanites. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and I was going to say, couldn't we say we are all Lamanites? And so yeah. it's to be taken, and it says it's to be taken to the Lamanite people, just like we are adopted into a certain tribe. Um, and we could even have a family member from a different tribe, but I mean, couldn't we all say we are adopted into that Lamanite? I'm perfectly comfortable with that as long as we don't hurt anybody's cultural identity. Yeah. Anymore. And, and sadly, I think we have. I think we I, have. I would agree with yeah. that. Yeah. So that's, that's the only space I want to make is that we probably ought to not do it at the expense of saying, like, you're not really this, you're this. Right? right. Okay. Any other essays you guys want to hit on, like, specifically with a few minutes left? I think the Book of Abraham is kind of important. Okay. <laughs> All right, we're going to have three minutes. I can do this one in three minutes. So the book of Abraham, Joseph tells us that he gets some Egyptian papyri. It's got writings on it with the mummies. Joseph tells us that as he goes to translate this papyrus, that he knows that it is the writings of Abraham written by his own hand, right? And so he gives us a translation of papyri, and he also translates the facsimiles, these images. And he translates it and tells us what all the meanings of these images are. So, which is great, it works out fine because there's nobody on the planet Earth at that moment who can translate Egyptian. So, the scrolls are seemingly lost. People believe they went off to the Chicago Fair, and I think at least some parts, at least for a time, did. Chicago Fair, Petra, not Chicago Fair, Chicago, the city of Chicago, Chicago Fire. Uh, Chicago Fire happens in early 1900s, right? 1911? Anybody know? Okay. Okay. Sorry. So late 1800s, the city of Chicago catches on fire. They blame it on some goat at like Wrigley Stadium or something, but the whole city catches on fire. And they believe these documents were burned up and they're lost. And if they're lost, like it's just a matter of faith for the rest of time. Except that at least part of these fragments, we don't. We, there's there's debate over whether this is the whole bunch, whether there's some missing, what's missing, what's not. You know. But what comes forward is at least two of the facsimiles and the papyrus around those facsimiles, these images. We know once now that the Rosetta Stone has been discovered and utilized, we now are able to translate Egyptian. We know what the facsimiles mean. We know what the papyrus means. 
It, it certainly isn't what we have is certainly not the writings of Abraham. What we have is certainly definitely not written by Abraham's own hand. And there are those, and the essay makes this argument, the essay says, like, there's this piece of the scroll that might be missing. But the trouble is, where these facsimiles are that Joseph translated, Joseph tells us that the book of Abraham is right next to these facsimiles. And what's right next to these facsimiles we have, and that's not translating into the book of Abraham. We also know what these facsimiles translate to, and we have those, absolutely. And the Egyptian translation to English has nothing to do. This is just a standard funerary text. It, it dates to the wrong time period. It involves the wrong people. It just, based on just the science of it, it has zero connection to the book of Abraham. So in the LDS Gospel Topic essay, the church throws out, I think, five different answers. Um, one of them is the missing scroll. Um, one of them is that these, these writings had an alternate meaning than what the standard Egyptian translation would be. Another one is that it's a, the catalyst idea, which means that Joseph was, in his own mind, misled himself about what all this was, but God used that to go ahead and give him the book of Abraham anyway. And then there's two others, and I don't remember offhand what the other two are. Anybody know offhand, top of their head? But there's five solutions offered in the essay, and what I would simply say is that every one of those solutions has a problem, and I think it's the reason the church offers five solutions, right? If one solution was good, we just give one solution. But when you have five solutions to a problem, you really don't have any. And, and I would simply say, like, each of these solutions is somewhat problematic. The, the catalyst issue is that Joseph tells you, like, this is the writings of Abraham, written by his own hand. That's a pretty big leap to make without somebody telling you that. Um, so I would simply say, like, Terrell Gibbons and Richard Bushman say, like, throw out the translation. What matters is that the book of Abraham is scripture and it has spiritual impact in our life. And I love that, and I'm all for that. But I want to at least recognize for those in the room who say, man, that translation is a mess, and it doesn't add up. Like, I want to give space to that, too. Any questions on the book of Abraham? <laughs> there was my, like, six-minute <laughs> Any other, I'm happy to stay over a few more minutes. You guys are welcome to go up here if you want to have the night be over. Is there anybody has any other questions on anything in Mormonism that they want to throw out? I'm happy to talk. So you give like a one minute summary of the, the women and, and how they had more sure. responsibilities in the past. Joseph Smith gave the Relief Society a priesthood key. He says, I turned a key over to them. Number two, he gave them explicit permission that they could give blessings of healing by anointing with, with consecrated oil. And he also told the brethren to leave the sisters alone and let them do it. And we essentially said, now we're going to back in. So I, 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 I would be open to the fact that I think sometimes, this is just my personal opinion, in the next 10 to 20 years, you're going to see the church explicitly or implicitly give permission to the sisters of the church to go back and start giving blessings. Seriously, I think that who was it under that took it back? Because Brigham Young let them still do it. I think it's in that shoot. Is it going to be Joseph? Yeah, it's early. <laughs> <laughs> Like the 90s, 
1920s, 1930s. So he would have been an apostle, but he would not have been the guy making the Yeah, because they say they blessings under Brigham Young. Did they enter John Taylor? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so there wasn't like a, was there not a prophetic? We have journals from the early sisters of the church, most of the plural wives of Joseph Smith, right. who write in their journal that they were giving blessings until the day they died. And you begin to see the brethren like slowly not encouraging it anymore. And then later on. And is it about the same time that they start taking the Relief Society money away from them and their building? Yeah, so at one time Relief Society used to be completely autonomous and run itself. And now it has under priesthood direction. But it used to not be the case. Well, and it, it's the craziest thing. How in, it seems like women are getting, you know, it, we get less and less in this world. And, and there's, and modesty is bigger and bigger. My mother, can I tell your age? I don't care. My mother is 78, and she'll tell you that golden green balls, they definitely had off the sleeve, and, right? It was, or off the shoulders, right? But there was, I mean, the whole modesty thing, holy cow, it's got so much future. And so it's like the women issues in the church go opposite. Trust me, I know. We, we have a tendency, we've talked about this overreaching all night. If you go back to the 1970s and watch General Conference, colored shirts everywhere. Right? Today we say the white shirt is uniform of the priesthood, but I would dare anybody in this room to go find any official statement from the church on the color of shirts that, that adult men should wear, and you'll find zilch. There's zero, not a single statement on the You know when you say I have a neighbor who I was a fire director forever, and she came to me and said, seriously, she's my mother's age too, she said, Elder Packard has said that we are to use black binders for fire. She said that, and I just had her, I said, Eileen, if that's true, I am, and this was before I left the church, I, I'm so ready to leave the church. If that's the most important thing is we need black binders for choir, yeah, that, 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 I mean, you know, so I can see what you mean, because if that's not overreach, and if they get colored shirts, can we have colored, I'm just kidding, if I colored binders, but it's nowhere in the church manual anything about vision here either. Right. You, you do need counsel if you're in a bishopric. If you're in a bishopric or you're serving in the temple, there is instruction, counsel, bishopric, solid instruction to those in the temple to not have facial hair. But there's nothing for the general membership. Right? But yet we use it as a measuring stick. Like, how Mormon are you? Like, did you shave last night or did you shave on Thursday? <laughs> <laughs> Like we have these measures, it's a tribal thing. We do as humans when you're in a group is we figure out like, does she walk like a Mormon? Does she talk like a Mormon? Does she, is she really like, is she living? You know, we try to figure out these way to measure whether you're in a group. And I just think we gotta get away from it. And I think you're seeing conference talks addressing. Like Elder Holland, when he said like, there's different voices in the choir. Like we need to recognize like, there's gonna be some diversity. This is a worldwide church now. It's not a Utah group. And so there's going to be color, there's going to be clean shaven, unshaven, there's going to be uh, some mowing clothes, there's going to be you know, a man with a pigtail running on the back because it's part of his culture. We just have to be comfortable with the Right? Can we talk about the different uh, stages of adult development? Sure. I'll try to be quick. Yeah. Um, one of the things we do in a tribe is we say, like, here's the way to think about information. Here's how we gauge this stuff. But what we've learned outside of, outside of any religion, just talking about human nature, humans develop along a certain trajectory. There are certain stages we go through. 
so when we're born, we are very egocentric, meaning that we just care about ourselves and we're only worried about our survival. Right? It's why a baby cries. It's why a baby cries when it has those four things, whatever they're wrong with it, right? So it's messed this diaper, it's hungry, whatever. It's been, it's been, got hurt somehow, but it's egocentric. It doesn't, it can't help you. It doesn't care to help you. It's egocentric. When you move out of egocentricity, one of the stages you move through is called ethnocentricity. And ethnocentric is I'm in the tribe. It's a tribal mentality. And it's, it's us versus them. There's good people, there's bad people. There's Democrats and there's Republicans. And worse than that, there's liberals. Wait, wait, wait. In ethnocentricity, and you guys are fine. In ethnocentricity, your authority is always outside of yourself. What I mean by that is, if there's a question on any issue, you go, oh, what did my experts say? And in a religion, your experts are your religious leaders. In your family, your, your experts are your parents. In your school, your experts are your teachers. But you always defer your authority to somebody else. So right? is the number one. Right? And loyalty to the tribe is important. And there are rules, and darn it, we're going to follow those rules. Right? But at some point, some people leave ethnocentricity. They move out of that stage, and they go into something called world-centricity. And when they're in world-centricity, it's like they took a step out of their own tribe, and they see their tribe and all the other tribes, and they realize, like, oh, that's just humans being humans. And they reclaim their authority. Their authority is now inside themselves. So when there is any kind of discrepancy in their life, they go, like, I'll take what these, I'll take what my church leaders say, and I'll weigh that. And I'm going to go read a good book on this subject, and I'm going to weigh that. But at the end of the day, I'm going to go with what my gut tells me is right or wrong. Right? And I think all of us sense there's times in our lives where we go to, like, no, no. I don't care what I said, I'm not doing that. Right? It's it's kind of the Abrahamic test, and I'll, and I'll turn Abraham kind of on its head. We often pose the idea, like, Abraham hears God tell him to go kill his kid, so Abraham's obedient. Let me go do that. And that's from that ethnocentric perspective. But somebody in a world-centric perspective would say, no, 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 no. Something's wrong here. I'm crazy. I'm going to check myself into a hospital. I'm not, there's no way I would do that. I'm going to consult my wife and see what her thoughts are on this idea. Right? So somebody who's moved out of ethnocentricity into a world-centric stage is going to is going to look at information, is going to weigh information very differently than somebody who's in an ethnocentric stage. And there's no bad or good in these stages. It's just human. It's what we are. It's how we develop. In world-centricity, if even if your tribe is hurting somebody else's tribe, you're going to side against your own tribe because it's just the wrong thing. So when you hear people like at the time like. Man, that Mountain Meadows thing that happened, that was horrible. And then you get other people going like, man, if the leader's playing it, do you just go do it? Like, you, there's that wrestle of what's right and what's wrong. Someone in world centricity is going to go with their gut. There, it doesn't matter if all the outer authorities say, darn it, you do this, or you're damned. doesn't matter. If, if we go back into something we talked about tonight, like Lowry Nelson is saying, like, no, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. And, and I'm not saying like we gotta live in a world where everybody gets to just go with their gut, because that has problems too, right? Everybody just gets to do whatever they think is right, but that has issues. So there's this there's this blend, which after you leave world centricity, you step into something called cosmic centricity. And in cosmic centricity, you not only see all the tribes, but you also see like the hurt they're doing to each other is just human nature. And no, you don't want it to happen, but you also realize like this world has a timeline to it, and people develop on their own, and you're able to kind of sit back as an observer and just appreciate 
human nature for what it is. And you don't need a, you don't have a need, even though you know it's wrong, you don't have a need to condemn somebody for their bad behavior. You realize it's just humans being humans. And, and so all of us move in that process. All of us move in that trajectory. And we're all at different places. I have a brother-in-law who is still an egocentric. Like, if, if you're going to go to the restroom, and there's six of you making your way to the restroom, he'll run in front of everybody and close the door and lock it and say, sorry, I had to go worse than you. Bill, is he here tonight? No. He's Point him out. <laughs> Watch my face. <laughs> so there are people still in those early infants, and you guys can all think of somebody who will always put themselves first, always take care of their needs before everybody else. What is that? Okay, sorry. sorry. Um, I thought maybe my house was burning down or something. Time to go. Okay. And, 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 and if people leave, please take more snacks, take more drinks. But simply realize, like, there are still people in these early stages. There are still people in ethnocentricity. Ethnocentricity see the world very black and white. Rules are needed. If they didn't have the rules, their life would be chaos. They have to have the rules. And so it's it's not. It's not a good thing to go to somebody in ethnocentricity and say, you don't need the rules, you can live where I'm at and go by the center authority you have. Like, that would be chaos for them. But also, on the other side of that coin, if you're in ethnocentricity, and somebody's now relying on their inner authority, like, you also have no right to go to them and say, come back here and do it this way. Like, but, like we got to follow the rules. Like, this is what it means to keep the Sabbath day holy. We do these 47 things, and we don't do these 63. Right? Because somebody in world-centric is going to go... You know what? I think today I'm going to skip church and take my family on a hike because spiritually that's what we need. And for that person, it's easy to go, mm, I don't think they should do that. But I'm telling you, from a world-centric perspective, that's that's the right decision for that person. We've got to honor it. We've got to let them make different choices because they're in a completely different place. They're processing information very differently, and that's just human nature. Does that answer your question? Is that... It was her question, but yeah. Okay, yeah. Sorry, our question. Yes. <laughs> That's right, you were going to Abraham. Yeah. <laughs> I threw out the easy one. Anything else? This isn't in the essays, but mm-hmm. I thought mm-hmm. I read somewhere that the beginning of Garments yeah. is tied to polygamy. Am I crazy? Where did Garments... Mm. Chris, I'm looking at you, because this is not This is not my... The Garment is... I don't think there's anything not attached to polygamy in some way. There, so much of our theology is attached to polygamy... Whether we know it or not, and if we can pick an issue, I'm sure we go back and figure it out. But I don't know the development of the garden. I seem to remember. I don't remember what it was, but I definitely heard something like that. Uh, just a plug. Lindsay Hanson Park has a podcast. Uh, Year of Polygamy. If you want to learn the stories of all of Joseph's wives and, and, and on, go to episode number one and, and listen through it. And what you're saying, I think it's on I think so. And I will say, like when you. When you promise to keep things confidential and you have certain things that make your tribe different in the outward awareness that we've made those promises, like it is easier for that tribe to then keep things like polygamy secret and within the group, right? So I'm not saying that the temple was created to do that, but it certainly was a repercussion of the temple in terms of keeping polygamy more confidential and away from the public. My people read promises. Some really good books on this. Um, Devery, yeah. uh, Devery, Devery Anderson. Devery oh, yeah. Anderson. Um, Which one is Mysteries that? Mysteries of God. Beautiful like Burger. Mysteries of God. God is a Burger. I think it's a good scholar. He goes through, he takes all the first presidency minutes and goes through all the temple changes that they wrote about throughout the entire time 
and shows you like how these changes slowly happened over time. Like some of the leaders were like, no, one piece, neck to, to, to ankle, never changes. And then as those guys got off, her leaders come in and like the majority and start making the shifts. You know, and I just want to say really fast, because this is a group that would appreciate this. So I taught up at Water Canyon for a little while, which is where the kids coming out of polygamy um, are now going to public school. It had a big effect on me, to put it mildly. But um, one of my students who I stayed close to, you know, the kids there, they wear the preparatory garments. So they wear to their, you know, just like the original garments were. So to their ankles and to their... Um, What's this called? <laughs> Thank you. I'm an English teacher. Doesn't that show? Um, so the kids wear it, which is why they look how they do. Right. And so she, we were talking. She was coming away. She was going to be one of Lyle, Jeff's wives. And she was talking to me about how her parents kidnapped her and how hard it was for her to leave that belief system about the same time that I was struggling with my own belief system. And we were talking about giving up wearing garments. And she said to me, what do you mean you gave up wearing garments? She goes, you, you Mormons haven't worn garments for years and years and years. And she said, you guys wear just little, little tank toppy things. I mean, she was, and she was so sweet about it. And I said, so were you excited to give up wearing garments? And she said, when I believed that God wanted me to wear garments, then no sacrifice was too much. And she said, and, and then once I, I decided that he wasn't a prophet of God, then she said yes. So she went through the same thing, but that was just so interesting talking about that, that to them, you know, what we wear, what we wear is absolutely nothing. Unrestricted. This is, this is unrelated, but I have to say that because you tied in a point. We often are judgmental of the fundamentalist groups. Like we see them, we're like, oh, that's crazy, right? But we ought to step back in time and recognize that when polygamy, when the rebel, when the manifesto was given in 1890, publicly Wilfred Woodruff was telling the government we're not doing it anymore, but it continued secretly until 1904 at the bare minimum and maybe beyond 1904, which is two or three prophets later. Right, Joseph F. Smith, I believe, is the one. Wife in 1887. Wilfred Butchers does. And after the manifesto on a, on a private ship out in the ocean so nobody could... Yeah, it's a really cool garment story. I mean, if we're talking about good ones. Melvin <laughs> J. Ballard is, he's a member of the Twelve, and this is in 18, 1917, 1918, the members of the Twelve are together. And they're trying to change the length, right? The women are right. complaining right. that their dress lengths are coming up. Mm-hmm. And their garments are hanging down, so they're rolling them up. Right. And so the twelve decide, well, let's just not wear garments at all except in the temple. Well, why are we wearing them anyway? So Melvin J. Ballard's wife is so excited, she calls her, she gets hold of her girlfriend, they take a carriage right into Salt Lake, buy all the underwear. So excited. Well, Joseph F. Smith is an athlete. He gets the meeting the next day and he's like, what the? <laughs> sections of the saints and says, okay, you guys go off into Canada and keep this thing going, and sooner or later the governor will come around and we'll bring you back, but no matter what you do, if you keep the principle alive, mm-hmm. right? And then you take another group and say, you guys go down to Mexico, you keep polygamy going and keep the principle alive no matter what. So then when they finally say, okay, 20 years later, enough is enough, we're ending it, 
Can you understand why these people can't let go of the principle? Because they've been commanded by a prophet to keep it going at all costs, no matter what the church did. And so we ought to be respectful and say, like, this, as much as we say, like, well, they don't have the authority, we've got it. It's easy, once you jump into history, to realize, like, their claims, to some extent, are just as valid. In fact, we have an 1886 revelation by John Taylor. It's not in our canon, but we, but we still have the, the document, and we have copies of the document. It's in John Taylor's own handwriting. 1886, four years before the manifesto. And he says, in the Revelation, Jesus is visiting him. Jesus says, my son John, hear my words. And then tells him that he is to never end polygamy. It is to keep going no matter what happens. And then four years later, Wilfred Woodruff does a 180. And so we ought to see like this history is messier too. And those who, those who practice polygamy today and claim to be breakoffs of our church and have the priesthood, their claim is actually true based on what John Taylor told them and what Wilford Woodruff told them, but not what those after told them. And so they're getting a contradictory message and they're trying to hold on to what they were told to hold on to. We lose two, two apostles over it. Yes, John Taylor and Cowley. Matthias Cowley. Yeah. Both of them are excommunicated because they're like, no. Previous prophet said, no matter what. Like he's talked to Jesus and said, we can't end this no matter what. There's lots of hands. Sorry, who's first? I just can say, we're still practicing polygamy, though. Like in our current ceiling ordinances, it says, do you give yourself to this man? And then the man says, do you receive her? Right. There's no equal receive or give. And so she gives yeah. and he receives. Right. If you have ten of your wives die, you keep getting married to the next one, right? And, yeah. and, and so we believe in the life hereafter somehow that there is there is this connection still, right? There is still a plural marriage. It's for Carolyn Pearson's new book. It's throughout yeah. our it's throughout exactly. our theology. Oh, I was just going to add to that point, like not even widows or whatever. I'm divorced. My husband's divorced. We have a yours, mine, and ours kid situation. His ex-wife is remarried, and she didn't marry a member, so his is cleared. Mine's canceled, and so that means we're sealed to this baby and this wife who's remarried and moved on. There, there are women My children are sealed to, you know, it's, it's very complicated and very painful as you're trying to move on with your life from experiences with actual people that damaged you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we think of polygamy in the past, but there are members of the church, primarily sisters today, who are still dealing with the trauma of like, what happens if I get sick and die early? Does my husband marry someone else? And then on the other hand, if you're the woman and you married 18 and she died and your husband dies six months later, and now you marry this other guy, you have this incredible life with the children and experience, and he's just not alone. Like, there's still trauma. Polygamy is still causing trauma today. I grant that, absolutely. So what's your thought on polygamy then? Do you think it is an actual, like, true principle, and Joseph just, like, messed it up? Here you go, Bill. Take well, that. I mean, what? <laughs> we, are, we are way after 10. <laughs> Um, I compartmentalize really well. I've said this numerous occasions. Like I could, I could fight her. She said, "What is my personal position on polygamy?" Part of me struggles because it's Section 132. Like I, like I see our leaders overreach. But generally speaking, when I go back to actually what we claim God has said on the issue, I'm okay with that. Section 132 is the one exception. And so when I look at Section 132, like. 
I don't know what to do with it. It's like it's like an elephant sitting in the room, and we're all just kind of like pretending it's not there. Um, so I'm really careful, like, because it's claimed to be revelation for my faith, right? So here you see me stammering and trying to avoid your the answer. Um, I would want to leave room for Latter-day Saints to completely toss out 132 and still be faithful Mormons. And and I would say that there's a large chunk of my brain that wants to do that very thing. Fair enough. Uh, can you talk about... Uh, in- Patrick Mason's book, he gives a lot of do's and don'ts to help those that have been or are currently going through a faith crisis and how to help them. Sure. And, and let me, I'll ask you, I want to say one more thing because you sparked oh. me having another yes. thought, which is we like to think section 132 is like one revelation because it's in one section of the NC. And part of the reason we don't want to let go of it is because there's also eternal families in there. And so if we let go of 132 completely, we also lose something else that we don't want to let go of. I wonder why that was. So what I so that's that's our scriptural basis for families in eternity. But I would throw out the caveat that section 132 is actually three or more revelations put together into one section. And so I'm okay exploring the theology of taking apart those knots and still holding on to eternal families in parts of 132. And letting go of other parts of 132 make me really uncomfortable. I'm not okay with a God who threatens damnation to a woman who won't accept polygamy or give consent. Like, I just can't live with that. So I'm okay, like, parsing it out. But there's parts of 132 that I don't want to let go of either. Okay? Um, do's and don'ts of, of a faith transition. Part of it, I think, is just, and I don't know about Mason, like, I've read his book, but I'll put it in my own words because I don't know that I can quote him. Um, Patrick Mason does say, though, that we've loaded the truth part with too much. It's overloaded with rotten fruit, and we need to dump some of it out. And I, and I think that's just, we got to come to grips with that. We put way too much in our truth part. We need to just take it down to five or six essential things and, and allow people to have diversity after that. And, and he seems to be fighting for that. In terms of helping or not helping people in a transition, any time we impose that where we're at is where they should be, we're going to be off base. If we throw out uh, fixes like you should pray more, Jessica, you should pray more. Jessica, if you read more, Jessica, if you just if you just uh, read the scriptures every day, this would fix itself. And what I would say is that this isn't what we perceive in our head as people falling away from Mormonism. When we look at this developmental pattern we talked about earlier, it's actually progress and growth. And so it's easy for us to say, oh, they're different than me today. They weren't different than me yesterday, but they're different than me today. So something's got to be wrong with me. And I think the reality is, like, once we see people grow and they develop and they change and they look at things differently, then we can just step out and say, oh, that's just Jessica being human. That's just Jessica growing. And part of our issue is that we haven't made Mormonism a big enough tent to include people who come to different conclusions on some of this data. And part of what's chasing people out is that we're keeping that tent small and saying, no, there's only a certain way you can be Mormon. And if we can open the tent and say, like, yeah, as long as you find spiritual benefit in the book of Abraham, it doesn't matter how it was translated. And you can have the opinion that Joseph, you know, none of those theories are work. And whatever we ended up with, even if Joseph is making it up but with good intent, and that scripture blesses your life, and you use it as scripture in your life. Like, can we honor that they're still utilizing the book of Abraham? Um, 
if somebody believes the 1832 account of the first vision and not the 1838, can we let them still be Mormon? If somebody doesn't like polygamy, but they still want to do the other things, can they still be Mormon? Right? And so we've got to make decisions in our faith on whether we're just going to keep the Bruce R. McCarthy, Joseph Building Smith Mormonism. Because if we do... Or call them cafeteria Mormons, right? Everybody's a cafeteria Mormon. Exactly. Everybody in this room has something they do different than everybody else in the But that tribe. came at, right? That was in that talk sure. saying we don't... And so you you feel... Right. You, so our language, our language says you need to walk and talk like us or you can't be us. But I think we've got to get past that. And I think if we want to keep people, we have to find ways to say, like, yeah, you believe differently than me, but you're still finding spiritual benefit here. And so I'm going to honor your journey as just as much on God's path as my journey. And I think if we can do that, like, and again, there may be some things we can't give up, right? Like, Bushman makes the indication that there's lots of 19th century material in the Book of Mormon. Lots of it. To the extent where we're going to have to reframe exactly what that translation was and how Joseph did it and allow for Joseph to have inserted some of his own culture into the storyline. And that's going to be really hard for a lot of Mormons, but that's what the data is telling us, is that we find phrases that are absolutely not common, you know, they're common to that day, the 19th century, 1822. If we go read a book called the, the Late War, or the first book of Napoleon, which are written in Joseph's time, they have the exact same language, and it came to pass that, you know, and it says almost entire sentence, if you just change the noun, the entire sentence is the same. Right? So we have to make space for like, maybe some people won't believe the Book of Mormon is completely historical. Maybe they're still wrestling with that, but they still find it to be a spiritual guide in their life. Can we still let them be Mormon? And so I think as a, as a people, we have a lot of growing to do. And I think if you, if you all just, whatever side of the spectrum you're on, if you look at what the leadership talks about, it's no longer talking about McConkie Mormonism. It's no longer talking about Joseph Billy Smith. We're not fighting on hills about how old the earth is or whether you can go to the circus or not. Like, we're just not fighting those fights. <laughs> <laughs> is that a Mormon doctor? You have a Mormon doctor? Let's look it up. No. I've got a, third, I've got a second or third of the Chicago County. It's a Mormon doctor. So, what is your advice for someone who is going through a faith crisis who wants to talk about what they're going? through and whatnot, and it comes across that they want everybody else to have a faith crisis around them. Yeah. And so what advice do you give to them? Because um, that can cause conflict within yeah. the family unit, but it causes conflict within them because they need to talk, yeah. but they don't feel like they can because no one will understand that. Can I talk to that? Do you mind if I speak to it first, and if I don't care, I'll say please. Brene Brown, a really cool lady, talks about vulnerability. And she talks about there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. And sympathy is to like look at this tragedy going on in the drop off a castle. Or right, which we at Mormons are really good at, right? We're good at dropping off castles. <laughs> but but empathy is to sit down next to something, put your arm around them, and really want to occupy the trauma of space that they're having. And, and so part of the issue is like, I know this stuff's messy. And I just can't sit and let us have this conversation because it's going to bring me down. Like, I get that. On the other hand, this person, whoever it is in this room, all they want is validation. Like, I, I see what you're seeing. This is messy. There's, it's reasonable to walk away. I hope you don't. Here's why I stay. But it, it's reasonable to walk away. And the moment we can honor people in the trauma they're having and put our arm around them and say, like, that's a valid experience you're having. That's real. That must suck. 
and, I, and I'm glad I don't have that, or maybe I went through that at an earlier time, and not try to fix it, right? Like not be like, hey, this is what you should do. So one thing that I remember early on in my faith crisis with my wife is I was adamant, like I didn't really want to get into the specifics of the issues. But I needed her to validate, like, this is messy, and this story is way different than our leaders told us, and the manuals have inaccuracies, and our leaders have contradicted each other. Like, there's a mess here. And if somebody can sit with you and say, like, I don't need you to, I don't need you to get fixed, I don't need something to change, and I honor that the institution and us as members are major contributors to why this occurred, then I think you'll see that that tension lessen. Because what they're fighting for, and if I just use you guys as an example, I'm not trying to be offensive to anybody. No. If I use you guys as examples, what they're fighting for is they're wanting you to look at them and say, I get it. It's reasonable to arrive at the decision you arrived at. It's, it makes sense. Like I see these issues, some of these things don't add up. And you don't have to agree that that's the right conclusion. Just to see, like, they didn't, it's not because they didn't pray enough. It's not because they didn't read enough. It's not because they don't care enough. I mean, I, I watch them, they, they're fighting. I mean, they're, these guys are, like, serious about, like, how they take their spirituality. And it may look different than it did five years ago. It may look really different. But, like, I see them on a spiritual walk. And, and for those who walk away from the church, I'm still in. I'm a temple recommend active woman. And I look at people who are out and I go, that's their spiritual journey. Like, I honor it. I honor it. God bless you. And if you can do that, and I know I'm getting back on you, I'm not trying to, but if you do that, you'll see them lessen up on having to be specific with you. Because they're not trying to poke holes in you. They're trying to get you to see how serious this was, how much they dedicated their lives to it, and it turned out not to be what they thought it was. And so they feel betrayed. They feel, if I can be blunt, they feel lied to. They feel like the church was dishonest. And if I can be fully honest myself, to some extent they're right. And so can we honor why people step away? And at the same time, can I challenge you guys, like, honor that they stayed, and that there's a spiritual blessing in their lives for doing that. And it doesn't mean that your walk isn't true. It doesn't mean that you guys are wrong. It just means that that's, that's their spiritual path. So right, it's definitely hard to be not so passionate about it, and obviously on both sides, like, we, we also have made a ton, tons of mistakes. I'm sure many others who have, you know, become less orthodox can, can see, like, sometimes that anger and passion just... What do you say, like, your number one reason is you want validation. Yeah. Absolutely. You want somebody to say, like, this, you know what, what you did, if I lay all the data on the table, that's a reasonable decision to make, and I can't blame you for making it. And that the pain is real. Yeah. And that, that, you fought, that you fought to put the pieces back together. Right, like you've spent hours, not sleeping, up at night, reading issues, studying things, on your knees praying, going into scriptures, and the trouble was the more you read, the more you studied, the more you felt like something was off, something didn't fit. There were more pieces of the story that weren't adding up. And so you put in like tons of work. It wasn't that you prayed or read too little, it was perhaps maybe you read and prayed too much, right? Like, right? Like you poured your heart and soul in wanting this to be right, and for you it just didn't add up. Or at least doesn't add up fully that you had to reconstruct what you, what your Mormonism is. Um, some people keep themselves shielded from having any of these conversations on both sides. Some people just find out like they read a read a website and they're gone. And other people like just will not take a look at any of it, try to understand the mess. I would say there's great value for people like you tonight who are here and say like, I'm willing to listen, I'm willing to talk, I'm willing to ask questions, I'm willing to hear answers. 
And I'm willing to kind of wrestle with this. And my relationships with my loved ones are more important than, than, a, than a certain tribe, right? That instead, like what's important, like if families are eternal and Mormon is only 0.2% of the population, like families are important. Families are a priority. And so for everybody who showed up tonight, whatever side of the spectrum you're on, like I just want to honor that you care. And you care enough that you came. And, and to me, like that shows that you're willing to, to, to be something more than just shielding yourself off or walking away explicitly and saying the hell of all this, right? Like there's value in the wrestle. And I think all of us grow when we stay in that and we wrestle, whether in the church or out. When you stay connected to the, your tribe of your youth and you're still interested, you're still thinking and weighing and questioning, whatever it is. And I, and I get some of them, God, some people in Mormonism, whatever that is, like to continue to engage it, I think is, is really powerful and it, it's something that causes growth with each of us. Anyway, that's a good note to end. Bill, will you share a one-minute testimony with your testimony? How you would bear yeah. it in sacrament? Um, I have borne my testimony in sacrament a long time. It's a good way to end. And this will after this event. If you want to stay over and later and ask more questions, you're welcome to come up and talk. Well, this is the end, for sure. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. So my testimony would be this. And, and I, I, I likely will offend both sides of the spectrum. Um, I don't know if the Book of Mormon's historical. Like, there were real defects in Lamanites. But I know the Book of Mormon has deep spiritual impact in my life. And so for me, it is scripture. There's no other word I can use to define it. Um, I don't know that the Holy Ghost works exactly the way I've been taught, but I also feel deep spiritual impressions and experiences in my life that I have to subscribe to something bigger and more powerful than me. I've had things happen in my life where I've been woken up in the middle of the night and told to pray for somebody, and I can't just set those experiences aside. They're real to me. They're not just mechanisms of endorphins in the brain going off. There's something tangible. Um, I have a testimony of Jesus, and again, maybe offensive. I don't know if he was a real person or historical, but I know that I've been changed by his grace and mercy. I know that that is real. I know the effects of the atonement are like real in my life, and I've been I've been made better and changed because of those. Um, I'm grateful for the church, and I do think in in a way that may be different than how anybody else would define it. But it's how I define it. It is true and it is living, and I am better off for being a Mormon, and I'm grateful to still be here. And I don't know what my journey looks like five years from now, but today I'm Mormon, and tomorrow I go to church. That's what I do. And I felt great spiritual power in carrying out that part of my life. At the same time, I honor others because I know other good people who have spiritual experiences similar to mine. Just because they're not a member of the church doesn't mean they don't have those to do. And I want to honor those as well. Um, is there a specific thing? Like, I don't, I, I just, I feel like, yeah, this is messy. Yeah, I had to renegotiate my belief on every single facet of Mormonism. And yet I still find Mormonism to be my home and where I'm spiritually affected. And it's the language and symbols, as, as Risa Aslan says about his Muslim faith, it's the language and symbols I use to connect with God. I said, you just Amen. Okay.